Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Recorded live. All right. Hey. Mike. Hello. Hey, how's it going, man? Good, good. How's it going? How you doing, man? Well, uh, yeah, uh, for those who will hear this show in the future and all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, we were hoping on having uh, Todd Swallow on tonight from the Necros, but uh, uh guy, he, he, poor guy, he gets in an accident, so, yeah, or something like that, or he, he had some kind of uh, prolonged injury, he had some kind of surgery done this week, and he's just not feeling up to it tonight, so he did say, get a hold of me later on next week and go from there, so, yeah, we'll see what happens, so, uh, but we still have, uh, we have Nito, how do you pronounce your last name, man? Two and O. Two and O, that's right. Two and no. Okay. What a cool name. <laughs> it's spelled it's spelled T E A O N E A U X. So anyways, what I was what I was thinking of getting started here anyways is this um this is gonna be the first episode of a series, I'm hoping. Although I must tell you uh, it is uh, bringing back a lot of uh, uh, rough memories for that time period, but I guess it's something, maybe something cathartic and, and uh, therapeutic that maybe I need to do. Maybe that's what it's all about, you know. Um, in that time period in the, the 80s, the mid-80s, being part of the uh, hardcore punk scene. So, But, uh, yeah, I want to start out with, even though we don't have... Uh, Todd, tonight, regardless, we can still um, talk a little bit about the Necros. I will just, I guess, you know, you've made some kind of influence, impact on society if you have a Wikipedia page. So <laughs> we'll go from there just for a little bit. Uh, it says here, Necros were an early American hardcore punk band from Maumee, Ohio. And uh, actually, Todd was from South Toledo, but the other guys were from Maumee. Um, anyways, they're still on the same side of the river. And uh, although they were usually identified with the Detroit uh, music scene, they were their first band to record uh, for uh, Touch and Go Records. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, that Todd, along with uh, Tesco, Derek. Is that how you pronounce his name? I can't remember now. I'm so tired. Uh, Tesco B. Yeah, Tesco B. Out of uh, Lansing. Um, I think they started together, but if I'm not mistaken, I think Todd started it. But I will, that's what maybe when he gets joins us, he can clarify a few things. So so a weird, how's that? Do you mean Touch and Go? Who started Touch and Go? Yeah. It was Corey Rusk out of the Necros. 
Oh, that's right. Troy Rusk, Court, uh, yeah, Rusk and uh, and 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 Swallow. But didn't yeah. didn't didn't uh, didn't uh, the, the Meat Men somehow get involved in all that too? Yeah, Tesco V was in the Meat Men. He was also in Tesco V and the Hate Police. So yeah, Tesco V played in the Meat Men and was one of the three founders of Touch and Go, along with Corey Rusk and Dave Stimson. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because, like, then you got like negative approach, which is you know part of that Toledo. You see, part of this thing, <laughs> Toledo's like the ugly stepdaughter that no one ever wants to talk about. But uh, Toledo was turned out to be a big part of the '80s hardcore punk scene. And uh, we talk about mommy. We're basically talking about Toledo. So, and then you know, like you got uh, negative approach, and there's connections with the Misfits. Uh, even the Beastie Boys, believe it or not, the Minor Threat and the Black Flag and all, Black Flag and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it says here Necros were formed in uh, 1980, 1980 or 1979. I'm not quite sure. It says in 1980, but yeah, he'll clarify some of these things. Uh, by then, teenagers uh, Barry uh, Hetzler vocals, Andy. Wendler, guitar, Todd, Swalla, drums. The thing about Todd, Todd is a very influential person uh, in more ways than one. I mean, as we go on in those conversations we talked about yesterday, Todd was, it was guys like Todd that uh, made, the, gave us the guys like myself the realization that if you had a halfway decent drummer, you could start a band. <laughs> And if there were three chord power chords, three chord progressions and power chords, you could do, you can make some music, you know. And um, and of course, we'll probably go into that about your take on that too, with the, the tribal aspects of that, the drums. But um, what I really want to do, instead of going into too much about the the necros themselves, because they really, um, if there's anything like my experience with when I was in music. It was like whenever somebody did an article about the band or somebody interviewed me, they never quoted anything right. So <laughs> it's better to just hear from the mouth. So yeah, but, uh, with this whole thing <clears throat> with the band of the band dot com, one of the local bands that came out of there uh, was gone in sixty seconds. That later turned into. Um, Oh, it was a buddy of mine too from high school, Eric O'Blander, who uh, who started was called uh, Five uh, Five Horse Johnson, and uh, they did a lot of European tours and all that kind of thing. But anyways, if you look at the Necros, and I I I can send this via to you and to if there's any guest or was a guest I don't know guest two guest two I don't know if you're someone who's into the hardcore scene, if you want to certainly chime in, you can. Uh, I'll send this to you as well. You, you know? Um, yeah, so this is going to your Skype. And what's interesting about the Necros is their influence on so many different bands. Um and it's just the family tree, three degrees of separation from the gone in 60 seconds. I'm getting it from there. Um, 
a band that had like Eric Blander, uh, Andy Wendler from the Negrals, and uh, and Steve Smith and uh, John Keller and uh, Lonnie Lanes. Um, as you look at the Negros, if you look at that family tree, I don't know if you got it yet, but this is like huge their influence on so many people from uh Let us go from the top here, man. And then a lot of these came out of this particular area. You got Mule. Okay, you got Laughing Hyenas. And then Mule, Firewater, uh, the Denisons, uh, the Kimball Trio, DK3, the Jesus Lizards, the um, L7, uh, Don Kev Valero, uh, Bellini, Speaking Canaries, Half-Life. Then you got the Meat Men, and then you got Tesco Fees, um, Hate Police, Blight, Tesco and the uh, Meat Crew, Fix, Minor Threat, Dag Nasty, Bad Religion, uh, Junkyard, uh, Doggy Style, uh, Lickety Split, Government Issue, which is a band that I remember playing, opening up for quite a bit. Um, there was, good, there was some dudes that were strung out, man. <laughs> Back then in the day, they, got, they had to be on something, man. But anyways, um, Middle Age Brigade, uh, Sam, it was at Sam Hain, uh, Earth 18, Young Patrol, or you see me, Youth Patrol Dove, Youth Brigade, Untouchables, Manifesto, Second Wind, Double Zero, Rain, etc., uh, Rosalind Ranger, so I guess we'll say it. Then there was Big Chief. Big Chief was kind of a big uh, a big deal <laughs> back in the day. Uh, Giant Brain, the and the Verico. Um, how do you pronounce that? Is that Verick? Verick? I guess that's how it is. Easy Action, Gravitator. Um, then there's Liar, Cheats, and Thieves. DD. Or is that Rome? Ramon from the Ramones. Yeah, sure. Ramones and the Chinese Dragons. A negative approach. Chris Moore. Then angry at Red Planet. Um, uh, blah 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 blah. Anyway, so um, yeah. So then you got so one of the bands that I listened to, uh, especially during the mid '80s, that got me going into the band called Majority of One. Which I found out with the reason why uh, I was looking at my archives today, and the very first CD that they ever did was with me and and that, and it was called Civil Disobedience. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know what? I, you know what I ought to do? I ought to, before it's too late, I ought to record the dang thing because it's not on the uh, what do they call that disc, discography or whatever they call the thing where the for the majority of one. But uh, definitely, that was when you, definitely a time when you see guys like uh, uh, Swallow that were really influential in our lives at the time. So, and this is talking about the high school. I and mean, the thing is, the darnest thing is that we really did have an original sound. Uh, but those guys, they wanted to go into the straight edge uh, hardcore thing and uh, sell out. And, 
which is hard to believe that you could sell out in the hardcore scene, but they did. <laughs> with the, the Doc Martens and the flight jackets and just being posers. And you know, one of the things I, I wanted, I remember uh, Todd, but I wonder if he, he probably would remember us from the Ramones, or not the Ramones, but the majority one. Um, um, and how much nobody really liked us. And I think probably because everyone sensed and realized what was going on, except for me. <laughs> and that was, there was a couple of guys or a couple of sellouts who were just taking, you know, part of the, the, the parasites, the pariahs out there that took, took advantage of the scene to make an opportunity for themselves, if you will. Which it turned out to be the case. Uh, if we go into that, maybe we will. So, but like I told you, I said you know that the, the producer from Devo, the producer Devo, showed up at my front door and said, you know, you guys are really awesome. You just had to get rid of the two guys that ended up going somewhere with it. Um, you know, lead singer uh, Dirk and then Ali, the really guitar player, because. <laughs> And part of the problem is no, they didn't want to practice, you know. But anyway, so back to this because my it's not my story is really that important per se, but it's just the Necros, and um, their uh, their influence because you know, like Todd, you know, when we talk about the Misfits, he uh, these guys opened up for him, did some tours with them. Actually, Todd even played drums at times for the misfits and it just the, the i think what was whatever it was there was that combination i mean it, it, first of all it was this whole thing about you know do it yourself diy type of approach to music where you know uh produce your own music write your own music um that it was uh being in a garage band wasn't uh was not a reason for not to do music. And uh, other thing was too is that uh, you didn't have to be a very good musician. And of course, as a teenager, when you're starting out, that's like a great thing. But as time went on for me, I, um, I wanted to expand uh, and grow as a musician, and it wasn't going to happen in the scene. So by the time I, uh, well, I have to say, but. Right. Well, soon after high school, I've pretty much moved on to different things. But still, this movement influenced so many people. And I should rephrase it. It wasn't so many people. There were so many. Uh, this, there was a, a, a select few people who were interested in music and wanted to play. And what I really want to do with this series, I know there's you have your motives. And I think they will... Uh, tie in together i wanted i wanted to, to to talk to some of these guys who influenced me because you know i suffered terribly during this time period with depression i don't know what it was like for you but for me depression and uh one of the things oddly enough that kept me going uh was bands like the necros was bands like um doa believe it or not or um um, I don't know, just who influenced me. There were so many of them, and I would listen to them, um, and cheap cassette tapes, like we're looking at right now, one of what we did, and um, and it just didn't help me get through the afternoons, you know. Uh, yeah, Minor Flip, Black Flag, um, 
And I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. So what? Um, I wanted to talk to some of these guys too, and you know, ask them. You know, what happened? Why did you think things didn't quite? It's almost like uh, through uh, the powers that be, and that uh, it was dead on arrival. I wanted to talk to him about as well, uh, Todd, about what it was like to be in a band and. And, and, and just to try to maintain it, to keep it going in the punk scene. It was hard enough, let alone in the rock scene or, or any other scene, but in this genre of the hardcore thing where, you know, there was no, outside of the uh, independent mags out there, there was no great celebration. But at the same token, you got guys like uh, Ian from Minor Threat and... and Henry Rollins and a few, and then he got the guys. Somehow the guys um, and the West Coast. At the same time, you got like the Minutemen, you got uh, the Meat Puppets, uh, you got the Dead Kennedys. And uh, what was going on here, man? <laughs> what, what from your research? What do you what do you think was going on during that time period? Because for me, it was like we were in our own little world. And probably just as I, I still am to this day, it's just a useful dupe, a part of the scene, just to help. I don't know, gather intel. What? Uh, <laughs> there was a movement, and I wanted to talk to uh, Todd about this because they were part of this movement that started independently and, gra- and it was grassroots, and then it just, I don't know, it just imploded and and died. <laughs> But there were guys that, that rose from the ashes like some kind of Freemasonic uh, phoenix to make a name for themselves. And one of the guys was, you know, the lead singer from Majority of One, and being a making the worst freaking music you could ever imagine. I mean, <laughs> that video. Did you watch any of that video that I sent you? Um. The one about the sex, I want to say, I want your sex or something like that. It was, I mean, it was so. Oh, yeah. Um, What's the name yeah. of his new white What's terms his... and stuff? Your your singers, uh, like who he's an agent for? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's I like a few of those. <laughs> they're they're modern the... boy bands. Yeah, I mean, what the heck? Modern, they're what modern, is... like androgynous boy bands, and uh, yeah, it's. I, I was blown away when I started thumbing through some of those. Uh, so disappointing. so disappointing, man. I mean, it's just like, what the heck? I mean, there's there, the spirit. Uh, I don't know. I still feel that I was probably one of the more punk uh, of the the guys that I knew at the time. I really do. <laughs> you know, I just I was. I refused to have the purple hair and the spike. I didn't wear the leather. I didn't do any of that stuff. It was just about the music, and it was just me. You know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, it it just uh, I don't know, man. I just uh, and also guilt by association. I think about because I was in that band, and because of uh, Dirk and Ollie, and just you know, the it just there was like uh, there was uh, them, and then there was the rest of us, and they had some kind of agenda. And like I said, you look at his dad and his connections and. Everyone called them a not, you know, the Nazis. says <laughs> the Nazis, and I'm like, what the heck? What was going on here, man? So I'm, I'm sorry, man. This is probably not the 
I don't want this to be the Mike Adams show at all because it's just it was a part of my life, but it was a significant part of my life, and I really would be more I'm more interested in finding out. I mean, it could even like if you get like Tesco V on, if you could possibly, if you could break him down to the point where he actually just actually talks like a normal human being, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, there's there's got to be. It was like the best time and the worst times. It really was. There was this hope, and there was this this chance. This 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 illusion of you know, you know you could do music and maybe you could actually make a living being a musician and and uh, make a difference. You know what I mean? And it uh, it was all an illusion. It was all a big farce. And uh, although I'm grateful for that farce because I don't think I'm alone. I think there was a lot of folks then, even today, that the music helps them cope from the. A uh, monotony, the uh, oppressive uh, lifestyle of America, you know, this where everything is just BS and there's like, well, maybe I can be real here, you know. But even there, it, 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 when you look at, if I look at the scene and uh, uh, the conflicts that were going on, how people just to get along with each other helped, it, the, the attitudes not only negative, but also just like uh, uh, the backbiting, the gossiping, all the crap. I mean, sometimes I th- it was probably worse in the punk scene it was, and, and you know, the public. A lot of shallowness going on at the same time. So, and yeah. uh, I refused to wear the uniform. And it was interesting listening to you and and. Uh, talking to the others on different shows about the uniform and how that was a part of it. And even, you know, you, you go back to the, the whole, uh, structure of the hardcore punk music where it was a lot of, you know, get yourself a really good drummer, uh, steady beat, good fills, and just three chord progressions, a lot of just bar chords and, uh, and everyone started to just sound the same. And, and, and there was no like. It should have been, at least my opinion should have been, because like what we were doing, we were being labeled like a cross between hardcore and and surfer music, <clears throat> and it's that's not where the guys wanted to go. They wanted to sound just like the Necros. But and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, in the sense that there's nothing wrong with the Necros, except that you know I wanted us to be the majority one, not the Necros. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it and, and it even in this this supposed uh, really li- uh, liberal uh, uh, independent uh, music scene grassroots thing is it turned out just everything else it just became homogenized and um, everyone trying to sound like the same and I just I, I I lost interest real fast in it. I mean, I still appreciate the necros because the necros were the necros, but I don't make it doesn't make any sense for the rest of them to sound like that. It never made any sense to me. Anyways, saying that, I'll let you take over for a while, man. I've just babbled, babbled on for fifteen well, twenty minutes. <laughs> you asked kind of my opinion of what's going on, and this is only my opinion based on my research and my experience. But I'm uh, I'm doing a, a bunch of research, done some podcasts and stuff with the data I've accumulated, 
And basically my work uh, is tributary work to uh, Dave McGowan and primarily Jan Irving, Irvin and uh, his cast of characters he has on his uh, shows. Um, Dave McGowan wrote Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. I think that's a, uh, it's a very entertaining book to read. And after I put it down, um, he left a page uh, kind of leaving the door open for me to pick up. And it was talking about Miles Copeland and all these new wave bands. Um, and so that's, you know, I went, I started my quest at that point. So with those two, uh, you know, there's others, but with those two guys, again, Jan Irvin and um, Dave McGowan being um, primarily my, uh, some of my favorite work I listened to for sure, but also uh, once I started connecting ideas, seeing their ideas that they um, talk about in their research started to line up. And then in time, the cast of characters lined up exactly. We got overlaps with Ginsburg and um, like uh, Jan Irvin calls <laughs> the New York, uh, uh, he calls it like the Greenwich Village cell, you know, of like agents or whatever, like that cell of agents that, Dave McGowan and Jan, or Jan Urban exposes, but, um, you know, it, it reaches into the hippiedom through LSD and whatnot. It directly is an original manifestation for the punk rock movement. So that would be like uh, William Burroughs being considered the godfather of punk, uh, Allen Ginsberg, even Timothy Leary, um, all these exact people that uh, Jan Urban is exposing um, have their hands in this this mess too. So it's it's another page of a very thick book, and I think the title of the book should just be culture creation, culture manufacturing. Um, in fact, it should be like debased culture manufacturing. Um, we find with the research of Jan Irvin and like um, Hans Uter, the Grateful Dead sound experiments, and then uh, Hans Uter using his uh, music. Uh, history geniusness to uh, put some pieces together and show they're experimenting with sound. You find the same thing in punk with people like John Cale and whatnot. They're doing uh, experimental noise and it's total garbage. Um, some bands just use frequency. Like there's a band um, called Psy Warfare and it's um, one of its members is named Dwid Hellion. And he's from a band from Ohio called Integrity. And um, basically, when you listen to Psy Warfare, it's a bunch of tones, um, just crazy noise, tones and different uh, frequencies. And then the title's called Psy Warfare. And then you kind of look at Dwid and see what he's doing. And uh, that guy has, like, uh, I don't know if collective is the right word. He probably punch me in the face if I called it a collective, but he has a unit called the Church of Holy Terror. And that unit uh, really recognizes the process church. They sell process uh, church memorabilia. Like you can buy a, a, now, a didn't, four now, now, now didn't they uh, like uh, uh, meet, meet men in, in those group of guys, didn't they do like some kind of like a process tour or something like that as well? Do you, do you look into that? Because I know they, they had to, in fact, I know they did something like that. Oh, I've never heard of that, truthfully. I've never heard of the Meat Men. I'm writing that down right now. Meat Men and the Process Church Tour, it was just called the Process Tour. I think it was a Process Tour, but I think it was yeah, a Yeah, I've never heard of that. 
Um, okay. I'll look into that for sure, yeah, because I want every angle covered, and I got some researchers with me that are doing that, well, see, Because here's the thing, too, is I noticed, like, uh, like, like the Meat Men in Lansing, there was, there was a high school teacher that was involved in creating a lot of these bands. Well, Tesco was a high school teacher when he when he started uh, Touch and Go magazine in 1979. He was a third and a fifth grade teacher at uh, or in Williamston, Michigan. Was it was it was it Tesco? He, he that was a high school teacher that actually started it. Maybe he was. He was a grade school teacher. <laughs> well, this is the thing, and then there's also connection at U of M too. So, oh man, I know there is because I yeah I, so, I I was in the I, they. We went all the way up there and talking to, I don't know, some guy pretending to be the music director, saying, hey, man, now this is what we can really, we'll support you, we'll get all sorts of things, we'll pay for it, we want you to wear flight, and Doc Martens and flight jackets, you've got to shave your heads, and you guys are going to be the straight edge, hardcore punk band, and I'm just like, Really? Um, just like anti-thesis, this is anti-everything that we were supposed to stand for. And here I'm in this room, and I'm in this uh, place, and this this I don't know. It looks like a, a lecture room or whatever in the music room in U of M, and I'm, I'm hearing this crap. What's wrong with this picture? So is U U of M in Ann Arbor? Yeah. So I thought so. I just wanted to make sure before I went out uh, half cocked on this, but. So when Jan talks about the Greenwich Village team, um, I think there's an Ann Arbor team. I think there's oh, a Mexico County team. You know, I think that because there's some hot spots in my research where I think Ann Arbor is key to this research. Um, they got, you know, MC5 came out of there, out of Detroit. They're a Detroit punk band, I guess, but they were uh, tied intimately with John Sinclair and he was active in the White Panthers and the Yippies and uh, whatnot. And that all that stuff seems to manifest from Ann Arbor. And then uh, I've been doing research this week. I had to read some books. And uh, I just read How to Ruin a Record Label by Larry Livermore. And that would be um, Larry Livermore was the founder of Lookout Records. And that was one of my... Northern California connections and technically Mendocino County. And I read the book and I find out that this, this guy who doesn't fit into the scene because of his age, um, keep in mind, he was in, um, he was in a punk band called the lookouts. Um, he started lookout records and he, um, he was quite a bit older than the rest of the guys. In fact, he was like at Woodstock. Like, he's that old. So he's a generation older than these kids in his band. And, in fact, this guy had Trey Cool, uh, the Green Day drummer, was in this guy's band. And so I'm reading this book, and I find out, you know, I'm like, yeah, that's not too odd. I, You know, in our scene, there's a couple dudes that were significantly older than the rest of us and whatever. And they're in, they're in bands, but this guy, you know, again, he was at Woodstock, but then I, as I'm reading, I find out that he actually uh, lived at, when he, he, he was born in Michigan, and he actually lived on John Sinclair's commune. So I, recently, I just, I've done a bunch of research on MC5 and the John Sinclair connection, and this week after reading this book, I find out that 
a major punk label out of California. Um, the founder was living with John Sinclair, too. And then I just kind of like, all right, that's huge. So that's why I'm like, there's probably a Mendocino cell. So I just, and this is all like research I've done today and this last couple of days as I read this book. But yeah, so John Sinclair has his hands in, in Lookout Records. Um, I found another counterculture group similar to the White Panthers. And there was a number of them going on in the late 60s, like Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers, Red, Red Brigade. Uh, there was stuff going on in England that Malcolm McLaren was a part of, uh, Black Panthers, all these counterculture groups in the late 60s, which, you know, after doing research and listening to Jan and all these other researchers and putting all our pieces together, they seem like they're manufactured movements. Um, yet, yet, again, I find that it's, it's interesting that uh, punk... Sinclair has his hands, uh, his fingerprints on, on two totally different scenes. And again, I'm not saying he was uh, tied up in San Francisco doing this stuff, but somebody who lived with him started a major label um, in Mendocino County. Um, when I was poking around trying to figure some things out, and I just cracked this research this week, so I don't have much on him, but I find um, crazy anomalies like... Um, Again, Livermore was in a band called The Lookouts, and their drummer was Trey Cool of Green Day, which is a mega band nowadays. And then just kind of looking about, looking around on uh, Trey Cool, his dad was a Vietnam helicopter pilot, and I guess they ended up just moving to Mendocino County. And I just need to throw this note in, too. This is a key note. This is why it's important. Uh, Mendocino County is like, and, and where Livermore lived especially, which is called Spyrock, is in the center of the Emerald, I think it's called the Emerald Forest, um, Emerald Triangle, something like that. But it's, the, it's like where all the Humboldt County marijuana comes out of. It's like the, it's a major, major, major marijuana source it, back in the day up until today. Um, so this, they're in the heart of it. They're in the middle of it. And that place was notorious for... You know, armed guarded hippies. It actually had cartel people growing weed in there over the years. Articles up until 2015 show um, weed busts. You know, because it's that's what it is. It's supposedly some of the really good soil to grow marijuana outdoors in. And so they're all positioned in the middle of this. Um, my my research is going to take me to try and attach the emerald. Um, the Emerald area to, you know, CIA drug connections, which I've not done at all. I'm just saying that's where I plan on going with it. But either way, we find um, up in Mendocino County also, uh, that's where the hog farm is. And that's tied to like Wavy Gravy, who <laughs> was a merry prankster and was tied to the Grateful Dead. And with that, I found a camp that's adjoined to the hog farm called Camp win a win a rainbow and we find that wavy gravy founded and started this camp with funding by some pretty you know significant people including um uh, a grateful dead co-manager sitting on the board and i find out that trey cool was attending wavy gravy's camp for many years <laughs> so the green day drummer was going to wavy gravy's camp as a child for many years he was raised in the heart of the probably the most notorious 
uh, marijuana growing operation area in the United States, maybe par- partially the world, literally. Um, and, you know, right there, all kinds of red flags are going off. So I can connect like <laughs> a Grateful Dead kid camp. And again, it's for kids and nowadays adults. And they like learn to juggle and miming and, you know, weird stuff, in my opinion, weird. I'm not an artsy type of guy. Um, and yeah, so it goes off. So John Sinclair to, to, to Mendocino County, Mendocino County to like wavy gravy, wavy gravy to Green Day. And it all just starts intertwining. Um, so basically I'm just really finding my data and then looking for cross references in the forms of names, dates, and places with other people's research. And it's matching up exactly. Um, I'm finding stuff they, they're they not aware of. I'm, I'm almost sure if I could give Jan my database, which my brain database right now, it would blow his mind. Um, I've not talked about half of this stuff in probably 10 or 11 podcasts I've done. So back to the original question why I went on this rampage is it feels like these other researchers' thesis of uh, manufactured culture, uh, cultural debasement, it's it's uh, maybe a hand in punk rock, and I feel personally that punk might be the, the, the spearhead to these ideas because there's a lot of vanguards of social justice and modern society that came out of punk rock, and it was uh, brought to us through TV and music, and it's, it's pretty interesting, um, and that creates culture. So with punk rock, we have Allegedly, um, and these are their words, um, we have the first openly gay actor was a punk rocker. Um, His name was Lance Loud. The first reality TV show dealt with a punk rock band and a gay guy, and that was Lance Loud, and that was on PBS called An American Family. So our very first reality TV show put into the cultural lexicon of entertainment came with a punk tale attached to it, the first openly gay actor, and that's the key terms, openly gay, um, actor on television came through this punk um, documentary uh, reality TV shoot through, to, through um, PBS. And then we have the first openly gay musician. And again, the key is openly gay, and that's a guy named Jabriah. Uh, and he, he's like a David Bowie mock-up and, you know, that guy, I don't want to get into him too much, but he lived at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. And that's a, I think that's part of the Greenwich Village cell, as John would say. And, uh, yeah, he lived on, you know, his story is spectacular. Like, he lived in on the Chelsea Hotel roof in a pyramid and died, you know. So, you know, it's, all, it's chock full of weirdness. But, yeah, so three three things with modern social justice are injected into the lexicon uh, right there. Uh, another really fun one is marriage advice columns and the concept of marriage counseling has connections to punk rock. And it's not by punk rock per se through a TV or music, but um, Ian McKay, um, founder of Discord Records, he was in Minor Threat, Fugazi, to name a couple of his major bands. Um, his grandmother, uh, her name was... Um, Dorothy Cameron Disney McKay, I believe, but it's Dorothy McKay for sure. 
And she um, worked with a gentleman named Paul Popino, who was a eugenicist. He was a top-tier eugenicist, um, referenced by the Nazi Party, in fact, literally. Um, they, they brought his work into their ideologies and discussions during uh, Nazi Party times. And, um, and so, and another connection with uh, Paul Popino is E.S. Gosney. They worked together. And these guys were about compulsory sterilization, um, abortion, uh, eugenics, across the board. And, uh, and again, they're top tier. They're top tier. Lots of material written by them, about them, from them, um, used in a technocratic uh, system to, you know, intellectualize these cultural additions. But Paul Popino suddenly drops eugenics and goes into marriage counseling. And Paul Popino is considered the father of marriage counseling. Not my words. These are, this is research I'm doing. So this guy goes from eugenics to marriage counseling, and I find that incredibly dubious when the counseling can consist of eugenics ideas through the form of psychology or counseling. And again, that's speculation on my part, I'll say that, but him being the father of marriage counseling is dramatic in my opinion, and that's a cultural injection. Um, Ian's grandmother comes into play because she wrote um, – marriage advice columns for a number of uh, uh, magazines, and she worked with him. So they worked in tandem as a team with the cultural injection of marriage advice, marriage advice columns, and that was put forth into our culture. That links to punk um, through uh, Ian McKay, technically. And Ian McKay has um, – he's – He's, I've, I've found quotes from him that he's creating culture, you know, <laughs> he's substantiating the thesis with literal words that other people don't interpret the same way us researchers do. But he literally says he's creating culture and he had his hand in the uh, development and manifestation of third wave feminism through the riot girl movement, which primarily stemmed out of another creepy college called Evergreen State College in Washington. Um, Lots of lots of crazy stories, uh, you know, about him going being on tour in Europe and then just giving the his band, for example, Mr. T Experience, bumped into him and they played show and Ian McKay just gave them all the money. Like money was not a problem to them or an issue to them. And I don't think it's because they had so much. It's because this is speculation. I believe there, you know, Ian McKay was on a mission. I think he might be a guy, and I wouldn't call him a handler on any level. But he is a handler because he is one of the biggest influences of hardcore and punk. People reference him, Straight Edge, you know, Straight Edge spins into veganism, like all these little sub subgroups kind of swirl around him. And so either knowingly or unknowingly, he's manufacturing punk rock morons like myself, you know, like myself. And and the ideas, too. He's manufacturing cultural ideas. So when he's manufacturing third-wave feminism, um, the right girl movement is uh, kind of a paradoxical idea. And it's, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's third-wave feminism, and it appears like it's manufactured. Uh, and, again, it comes out from a very dubious college that has uh, its own show to talk about, uh, Evergreen State College. The second president actually 
of Evergreen State College. The second president of Evergreen State College actually um, worked with Ted Bundy, the serial killer, for a year on um, – Ted worked with him, I should say, on his political campaign face-to-face. I mean, that's another red flag in the Dave McGowan camp. <laughs> you know, and that's not the you know the only serial killer punk rock connection I can make that has crazy tales. So again, I'm not trying to. I'm bringing original. Uh, I guess it's not original data because it's already been produced. There's books I'm reading. There's Wikipedia pages, obituaries. It's all out there. But I'm I'm adding it now that other researchers are uh, expanding, in my opinion, successfully on their theses. And it's matching. So I'm comfortable with a hypothesis that this is just what happened was it was it's it was just time to switch. And Dave McGowan talks about um how the Laurel Canyon scene just popped popped up. Like everybody converged in the perfect timing. Um people from across the country bumped into each other with perfect timing, the clubs kind of lined up perfectly everything just was perfect and then boom here we are hippie hippie music 60s music um whatever i don't know what really to call it the doors the birds all those guys you know and you know you so he's i guess he's offering some conjecture but we see the same thing you know (laughs) in punk it did it was not organic i don't think it was grassroots um in 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 skeletal form but it was I feel punk rock is a self-contained cultural uh, phenomenon now because they injected do-it-yourself. They're like, you can do this. It's super easy. Look at how easy this music is. Go do it. And boom, every, you know, not everybody, but a lot of bands popped up. Pretty much every punk band is a DIY band unless they're of mega significance. And that's another key thing I found, too, is, you know, there's tons of punk bands. A lot of them sound good, but only a handful are... Um, cited as influential or important or historical or, you know, anything like with those kind of tags on it. So I I think that's part of the process, too. I think DIY was not an organic or a grassroots, like, yeah, you know, do it yourself. I think it was like, let's get these guys to do our job for us. And, you know, while we're sticking the music in their ears, because music controls many cultures, we're going to have them repeat the pattern themselves so we can, you know, work on other things. So DIY, DIY, and that, you know, that's a punk mantra from the beginning to right now. And all it does is encourage people to start their own punk bands. And then that encourages you to uh, get the punk ideas in your head. And that encourages you to understand um, politics on a leaning, on a very, very polarized side to you know, bitch about, and they're <laughs> this this shit's organic now. Excuse my language, like it's up and running, and it's way more significant than the hippie one. So that's why I think this might be the spear tip because it's it, it injected tons of ideas into our culture and more than I listed too. I, like I said, I could do this these talks for months, and uh, we'll never get it done. Um, but yeah, so. It's it's the ball's rolling and it's not going to stop. Hmm. Well, there's so many things I want to talk about. I mean, one of the things I want to talk about is the contradiction of what I mentioned earlier, and that was I was listening to these bands as like a lifeline, whether it was the bad bad brains or suicidal tendencies, a DOA or whatever it may be. 
as a, as a lifeline to maintain some kind of sanity. And, you know, I, I mentioned that I was suffering from, you know, uh, depression. I think I wasn't alone. I think there's a lot of folks and, and similar situations Always in, those, in, in this little scene that we were in. <clears throat> and I look back at it, it's like, well, this is how insane my situation was and others is that and the lifeline that maintained me to get through high school was some of the, the most negative stuff when you think about it. I mean, just think about all the names of the bands, the names of the oh, songs. Yeah. None of Simple it was positive. Work. None of none of us can, either, any part of it can say uh, that, that there was anything that was very positive about what we were promoting outside of the fact that maybe... Um, Nothing. The illusion, illusion of, uh, of <laughs> the illusion of uh, self-expression, but yeah, you got okay. you, so you, you got the, and the connections between, the, so the Midwest, which is basically the Great Lakes region, uh, uh, Northern Ohio and Michigan, and that was the scene. Was basically we're talking Michigan State and uh, U of M. That's pretty what we're talking about. Their influence somehow, some way. And um, and then you got you, you you're so you're talking about it. It started, I guess, in this new New York, uh, San Francisco, Laurel Canyon type of situation, but then it migrated to a different locale, I guess. I think it started in Lansing um, because when people and this is debatable for sure, um, but you know, one of the things is like who was first and. Uh, in my in 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 just kind of what I'm really uh, choosing a value in my research, I think MC5 uh, started in 1964, I believe, and they were out of Michigan, and they they have a crazy tale, and they were directly 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 handled literally open open language there by John Sinclair, the poet. White Panther, uh, CIA bomber. He, he bombed a CIA office allegedly and didn't well, do. Did, yeah, and there's Iggy, Iggy Pop and Iggy and, Pop. Yeah, and he's and a pedophile. Up, and, he's a freaking pedophile. Um, and there's no secret to that too. I just want to throw this in there because there's a book called Please Kill Me, and you, the, <laughs> my friend, my other researcher buddy, sent it to me because we mail each other books, and I just opened the the the, the book. And it's about Iggy Pop having sex with a 14-year-old named uh, Starla or something like that. I can't remember, but it's in Please Kill Me. I open the book, and that's the first words I'm, my eyes go to. And I'm like, holy shit, great. Iggy Pop likes 14-year-olds. You know, like, is that how they compromise these guys? I don't think so, because they're writing books about it. There's, there's yeah. cult, This is punk culture. This book is punk culture. And all it does is condone having sex with young girls that are uh, smitten over a punk cropper. So, you know, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, they're handled. They're also just corrupt and shitty, in my opinion. My opinion. Like, you know, there, there's some... Well, there's hey, some... Hey, hey, hey. It's really weird, because, like, Iggy Pop... Uh, yeah, I mean, like I told you, I got a, I got a relative that... Male relative that has a relationship with the guy. The guy was... He pretty much bragged on the 
fact that he could pretty much hump whatever he wanted to. And that's what he's, he's thrived off, was drugs and humping everything he could possibly find. But the thing is, his father was, he was a high school teacher in Ann Arbor as well. And somehow Iggy Pop and these group of guys that he was connected to, would they would end up like, they start playing like rich places up north. It's summer retreats where the wealthy would go. And so then this guy from Ann Arbor, you know, and, and um, you know, his his friends, his connection start a band and, uh, um, gosh, what was it? The Stooges? I guess that's what it was, right? What, what was the yeah. other? Um, yeah. Like he, a, had a, he had a couple bands. One of them had like a psychedelic name in it. It's on my blog. Uh, John Adams wrote it. I can't remember what it was. I think it's like Iggy, Iggy Pop and the Psychedelic Stooges or something like that. <laughs> there was a debate of uh, when John did his presentation, there was a debate that uh, this guy was like, yeah, punkers, you know, distance themselves from LSD. That's a ludicrous idea. So I set about to like annihilate that idea. <laughs> and, you know, well, he was. I, all, all I remember is whatever opening band, uh, act that we opened up for. And the, this, this is going to lead to something else, too, because there's, there's an interesting phenomenon that I've seen as well. Uh, but uh, every everyone was strung out on something. It doesn't matter who they were. I don't care who you, I mean, I don't care who you, they were all strung out on something. So back then, even in the uh, 80s hardcore scene, it, was, it wasn't uh, exceptional to be playing with guys or all coked up or whatever they were and just going absolutely nuts. But um, <clears throat> the other thing is when I see you there, especially in the Midwest, and I don't know what it's like in your neck of the woods, but I'm assuming it's about the same thing because trends seem to, to happen first in other places, then end up here. Or maybe as like you're saying, they start here and then, I don't know. Some people well, say it's... Well, the punk rock thing, I think, started in Michigan. I think the, the as John would say, the, the, the Ann Arbor cell... I think that was their their job was to pump out counterculture, uh, the '68 counterculture groups, and uh, punk rock, and and you know Allen Ginsberg, the Greenwich Village team had to had to pump out some stuff too because they. Well, it's guess, really it's really weird because this like the whole region you know, the area where I live. I I there's I can't think of any or any like even a radio station that promoted any of this stuff and yet it thrived. So how did that happen? Also, the thing is there was a, there was a connection with the, the bar scene. And with that, you know, there was like a bar scene and that we played in the kind of local band, like here in Toledo, which no one will find anything about today, but it was, uh, primarily it was the village. Um, oh gosh, the Cypress lounge. And then the other you would be the village idiot and mommy. Um, but also, but, but if you look at, it's almost like there was, yeah, there was, the bar scene was dying off at the same period. It was almost like whatever happened, there was like this moment of this kind of inspiration that maybe we could, uh, people could. Do DIY kind of band, you know, just do it yourself, do everything. And but it didn't really, it just fizzled out. That's that's a phenomenon that I think 
Um, it's very, I call it like a, um, what's that? I think it's like War of the Worlds, um, a phenomenon like War of the Worlds. So with punk, after doing this research and, you know, being in a scene, you're in a scene, I think the reality was this was a teeny, 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 tiny thing. Um, just by just by sheer numbers in population and statistically thinking. But it was not teeny because it was all over the television set, um, rife with controversy originally in the 80s, like, uh, like the, um, oh, I, I can't think of the talk shows, but talk shows had punkers on them <clears throat> and uh, skinheads. And all that stuff, and it was real controversial. Oh, oh yeah, the skinhead thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and so I think the actual punk, the literal punk numbers, up until recently for sure, were always teeny, like teeny, teeny, teeny in a statistical approach. But because it was blared out through the TV, um, music, magazines, fanzines, the DIY thing where it got everybody to try it and then go with it or not, like... That's that's kind of I think it's just it's one of the things where if you say it enough times it becomes true, and then yeah, and there know, definitely it, was it, 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 you talk about the the uh, the uh, this neo Nazi skinhead thing it definitely it was there man and why was like like for instance why was this guy from Ann Arbor uh, U of M so interested in talking to us and uh, and getting these guys, and they did it. I didn't. I, I just, I, I think it was like a couple months after that, I got a one-way bus ticket to Northern California, ended up in Chico and being a forest firefighter and all that crap. I was went off the deep end for a while there. I'm glad I did. You know, I have a much richer life experience than I imagine they did. Um, although I imagine they got laid more and whatever, but it was, you know. But anyways, uh, the thing is, is uh, yeah, this whole thing about the this, the same time this pushing of this, and you know what? I don't. I didn't know anybody, honestly. Even in the punk movement, the, the little, and I was always like a wallflower, anyways. And I don't even know if anybody would even remember me from back then, but that's okay. The fact of the matter is, is that I, um, I, I heard of the neo-Nazi punk movement, but I never met any. We never had like any kind of conversation like that. It was never anything about that. I, I have, oh, sorry. It was usually about, man, you guys suck, and <laughs> thanks, man. Well, nice one, you know. It was pretty much how it was. <laughs> so you got you to gotta flesh that out. You got to be like, okay, where did it start? I know where it starts, or where the history says it starts. So the very first American skinhead, we know who it is. His name's Harley Flanagan, and he... Is in a Christian was in a Christian band called the Cro-Mags. Yeah, the here's where we get to the Greenwich Village scene because Harley Flanagan was in the presence of Allen Ginsberg at the age of one forward. Um, Harley Flanagan's mother uh, hung out with Andy Warhol in the factory. Andy War or uh, Harley Flanagan's aunt was lovers to both Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky. So the very first skinhead, his name's Harley Flanagan. Skinheads uh, originated in America and New York, and he came back with a shaved head christened in, from, like, Ireland. That's the story. That's the legend of the skinheads in America. And coincidentally, he was hanging out with Allen Ginsberg since the age of one. 
that that's a that's a that's that's amazing to me, you know. <laughs> so we're just happening to talk about skinhead. I'll link it. I'll tell you who history says it is, and I'm gonna put attach it to like the Greenwich Village team, and then his again his aunt. They were so close that when Gallen Ginsberg died, Harley's mom was at the at the bedside. Um, Allen Ginsberg published a poetry book for Harley Flanagan. And again, this band uh, is called Cro-Mags, and they were very, actually, I liked them a lot, truthfully, um, and they were very influential in changing the New York hardcore scene, like, to the sound it was, and it became more medley. And then that, that became New York hardcore was the metal kind. He, their band changed the sound. He's the very first skinhead. It wasn't racist skinheads either. That's the thing. Like, it didn't start as a racist movement. It was just kind of hijacked. And I got some good papers on that, and uh, I, I read the history of it. And it's totally dubious, and it's another controlled group, in my opinion. Um, another skinhead um, stat that I find interesting is what's credited in history as the, very, the, the first skinhead band which doesn't mean they're racist. It just means skinheads like them or they epitomize old school skinhead things. So I'm not calling these guys racist. Was called Iron Cross. And uh, the singer Sob Gray lived with Ian McKay. And instead of putting Iron Cross's music out on Discord Records, um, if I understand the story correctly, he helps uh, Sob Gray start a little sub label of Discord called Skinflint, and <laughs> and, then, and then they put out Iron Cross. And if you if you like do some research, you can find out. You know, there's there's racist skinhead punk bands like uh, Screwdriver and stuff like that, and they're overtly racist. But Iron Cross wasn't. And but they but they're revered by the skinheads and the skinhead movement as a whole, good, bad, and different. And again. So I'm speculating with this sentence, but it seems like Ian McKay, you know, kind of, you know, didn't want to put that under the Discord label for some reason. And so he helped him come up with Skinflint, knowing the skinhead things. And Ian McKay, uh, you know, again, his grandma worked with the eugenicist. He's always had a shaved head. You know, I'm not saying he's a skinhead, but I'm saying he's part of uh, straight edge, you know, movement. And I guess they shave their heads and they're straight edge skinheads. Um, that's that's a sub sub group. The, the, thing, the thing is, you never really know. It's like the, when I like, like Dirk, you know, and, and the Nazi connections and all that, and him going from, and how did he get this connection? Who gave him the connection in Ann Arbor, and why did he go from a, a CD or the, the first album, Civil Disobedience, with a picture of Henry David Thoreau to? The next one being think about tomorrow and skinhead. It's and I'm just like, it, you know, it's obviously that that was there. I, when I say that I didn't know anyone, that doesn't mean much really because I, you know, I knew of guys. I was in rooms with guys, but I never really. I was a wallflower. I was, you know, it was, uh, you know, I was there to play the music, and then it was done. It was done. You know what I mean, kind of thing, and. Never really got a chance to really make any meaningful relationships, but at the same token, I wanted to bring up that thing because that's all part of this movement too. And you see this over and over again in this particular, especially it seems like with controlled uh, movements, is that they're just like uh, pseudo societies, 
pseudo cultures. They're not real cultures. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, the like Todd and all the other guys didn't have their little niche of friends in their own little culture, but or their own, you know, band of merry men type of thing. But the fact of the matter is, it wasn't. It was. It was like. It was like a religion that were they're creating a new kind of religious movement, if you will, you know, where, you know, you went to church on Sunday to listen to the pastor up there on the podium. Well, now it's, you know, this whole thing about this like grassroots type of thing. Well, you know, we're playing on stages that towering over people where they're running around in mosh pits and just pounding the, pounding the hell out of each other and, you know, looking Looking the part, you know what I mean, and, yeah. and there was no no real meaning uh, meaningful relationships. There's no real brotherhood. There was no uh, real uh, uh, depth to any of it, and there really wasn't. And that's, but you know, when I say that, I'm not knocking punk the punk movement, although the name is terrible in itself. We find out this, you know, jail bitches, but but the name comes from. But the thing is. It was. It's. It's like all movements. All movements in this culture that we live in, this Romanized culture, is all the same. None of them amount to anything. None of it. And our all our heroes turned out to be something other than we ever thought they would be. And I, you know, I let's go back to this. And I don't. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, I don't know enough about V to say if he was just, you know, if he's like controlled by some other forces, but I, who knows, you know, but if you look at this, this is Meat Men bi- biography up in uh, 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 Amoda, Amo, Amoba music. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple, just a couple, uh, actually paragraphs, give yourself a little break and then get back into it, because if mentioning names you're talking about and stuff like that, but it says here, this is from Charles Reese. It is not much of an interpretive leap to say hardcore punk remains stuck in the anal stage. According to Freud, this is the period in a child's psychological development when he or she begins to grapple with the conflict between uh, societal prohibition uh, presented most uh, approximately by the parents. I gotta expand this a little bit. Be patient with me here. It's, it's worth listening to just a little bit. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Okay. Did you it to me on Skype? Oh yeah, I could do that right now. I'll do that before you can get. I've, I've uh, heard the idea, but I've this is new material. Like I've never heard these words, you know. But yeah, this is this is good. Let's see if we get over here. There it is. So I'll get back to the article at hand. Um, yeah, according to Freud, this is the period of the child's psychological development when he or she begins to grapple with the conflict between societal prohibitions represented uh, by the proximity uh, by the parents and the eternal drive to, as Crowley once said. Do what thou wilt. <laughs> that guy's. Uh, 
how can Crawley have not influenced this society as beyond? Oh, <laughs> that name, that and this phrase is everywhere. It's like it might as well be the new national anthem while we're at it. Uh, the fixation at the state <clears throat> results from the parents indulging the children's or child's rebellion. Is it surprising that so much hardcore or, or originated from the suburbs? Rebellion during potty training takes two forms, anal retention, refusing to go with uh, instruction or anal explosion, letting it fly like a monkey in a cage. And this is definitely something that you would hear from uh, V. He would definitely yeah. talk stuff like this. He was really yeah. pushing this kind of crap. No pun intended. Anyways, now I get into this. Um, uh, yeah, the former gave us Ian McKay's minor threat and the latter Tesco V's meat men with the brutish wit and scatology as vocation. <laughs> v made ignorance into performance art. And by the way, this is, this is what the big joke was about anyways, and V will tell you that. It was the big joke. Uh, before the straight-edge uh, Puritans could come up with a song against it. He used the homophobia, xenophobia, racism, misogyny, and other uh, illiberal issue he could think of for uh, gaffos. Is that how you pronounce it? Gaffos. Like Gaff, uh, any uh, anyone dim-witted enough. To sympathize and or priggish enough to eject was the butt of the joke. Hardly uh, subtle, but neither is the Jenner itself. And the Meat Men is as close to the Swiftian satire as hardcore will likely get. And I guess we can go more on. But the fun thing here is, is born sometime in the 1950s as Robert Vermulon. So, so I had no idea that uh, the I didn't realize that. Uh, I guess I should have known better, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, he, <Your> name. <laughs> he has a song about having sex with pizza dough. I mean, <laughs> seriously, it's on Tesco V and the Hate Police. I think it was called "Fucking the Dough," and it's a song that he's describing how to have sex with pizza dough. And, and keep in mind, this guy was a third and fifth grade teacher, like, to me, that becomes disturbing. And, you know, I've, yeah, that's part of the scanning I do on most punkers to see if they've been caught with child crimes or well, you in, know, it gets, uh, rumors. It gets, it gets even a little more weirder. Cause you know, you look at this, it says, um, V spent his first 14 years in Kalamazoo, Michigan until his father got a job as a school superintendent and King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. High school became inf- became infamous for uh, of uh, infamous a few years later when its principal Jay Smith was convicted of murder, as recounted by Joseph Wambaugh. True crime book echoes uh, in the darkness. <laughs> yeah, it, what, what's most interesting 
like what what needs to be really like interpreted for the research I'm participating in is the very first sentence, um, or the second sentence, where it's according to Freud, this is a period in a child's psychological development where he or she begins to grapple with the conflict between societal prohibition and the internal and the internal drive to, as Crowley said, do what thou will. Um, right there, it's it's using a technocrat. Um, an expert in the field of psychology to tell us what science tell, has, is, is saying is accurate because it's science, which is that's an actual child development, psychological development. It's probably not, but it is now <laughs> because doctors <laughs> work off of a script supposing it is. You know, so this right here, that's what I, this is a beautiful, beautiful sentence. This is, I mean, this is like going to be on top of the cake. When I blow the candles out, like that sentence is going to be on top of the cake. And <laughs> I'm serious. That's beautiful because that's exactly what the Jose Barrera magic is. Jose style Barrera magic is. Um, it's the technocrat. Um, not that he says that, but this is the technocrat Freud um, being, you know, because he's an expert, his psychological, uh, child psychological development um, expertise is written down and rewritten and studied and used as fact. That's probably total fucking bullshit. Excuse my language. And it's just a made-up contingent of the, the, the cultural manufacture. So it becomes real. It becomes what it is. It becomes, it's kind of like what it was going to be. Like, oh, well, we need something to fit this thing. Okay, punk. And it's exactly like that. <laughs> well, yeah, but, the, but it's like the hardcore punk part. Why? I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of guys. I mean, just uh, dropped the punk part. I don't know if you realize. Yeah, I did. We did. We called each other hardcores. We didn't even yeah. want to say the word punk. Yeah. We were like, well, here's, we here's, joked about it when people were like, "What do you listen to?" Oh. We listened to hardcore, like, what's that? We're like, we're hardcores. We didn't say we were hardcore punkers or punkers. We said we were hardcores <laughs> out in Colorado. <laughs> we never identified as punkers. Right. Never. Never, ever. There was a teeny click of, like, eight to ten people that, like, we called the 82ers. And they had the mohawks and leather jackets and spikes. And they came to, like, one in ten shows because there's a very small but tight scene with, like, five bands in this one scene, and then there's, like, these Mexican bands that were some of my favorite bands that had a totally different scene, and every now they'd play together, and then they'd clash. But, yeah, we, we didn't, you know, they would be considered punkers, like maybe crust punkers or something like that. But, yeah, our our clique was, um, you know, and this is just, I'm not, I this is not meant to sound racist. This is just, like, recounting history. Our clique was, there was probably literally one black guy in the whole hardcore clique literally and he was in a band and he was an excellent musician he was in a band called painstake and it was a straight edge band vegan band too so <laughs> but um, yeah so it was dominated by white kids and we again we too just wore jeans and t-shirts and vans and we did get tattoos though that's the thing we didn't have funky hairdos um but we you know everybody dressed alike but it was really downplayed it was like Normal shorts, jeans, and a hardcore band T-shirt from a concert, you know, and just messy hair or you know combed hair. But we was just super bland and not not very much effort went into the avatar at all. Um, we all went to parties together, 
and they had house parties. It was it was actually a lot of fun. It was very different than what I'm reading about. There's still minor chaos, but it was all survivable. Um, yeah. A couple people died, but it, I mean, it was stupid shit, like falling asleep with like a nitrous tank on your head and you know dying. <laughs> shit like that happened. Well, I sure I should laugh, but it's just some stupid. But... Hey, look, oh, I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned the process tour. Now I understand. I find it. It, uh, the, this is back to the Meathead band made its final debut in 1981 on Touch and Go, uh, a seven-inch compilation called The Process of Elimination. Okay, what? so that's where the process... That's in the article that I showed you. I know, uh, like which paragraph? I really am trying to follow along. That would be the band made its... Um, how much Third paragraph? No, it's down one. I actually want to jump up anyway, so... It's like, let's see, one, two, three. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, but I want to talk a little bit, just read this one. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, so, are these two here? So, yeah. Although Fanzen had a small print run, it put V in contact with the most sentimental bands from the local scene. The fix, uh, negative uh, approach, um, necros. It's the fix from Toledo too. That sounds so right. I think that sounds right. Oh, I, I, um, I don't know. Is it Toledo? Yeah, or one of the two. Uh, the necros, uh, as an early champion of the misfits. So they, uh, you know, this. Okay, so Touch and Go helped establish the band's only major fan base outside of New York City and Los Angeles. Likewise, fans proved pivotal in connecting Ohio and Michigan hardcore with its more politically minded brethren, wink, wink, in Washington, D.C. The (laughs) teen idols, Ian McKay, sent a seven-inch EP for review, which started the uh, pimple relation, what is this? Oh, pen pal relationship uh, with V and his Midwestern cohorts. The EP, the EP was the first release from McKay's independent Discord label, which <clears throat> motivated V and DS to start their own as a subsidiary of Fanzen. The release of the early 1981, the first release under the Touch and Go imprint were uh, Seven Inches by The Fix and The Necros and funded by the band members and Fanzen's two proprietors, Corey Rusk, bassist for the latter and remained with the label, eventually becoming the main reason for the eventual success. While the serving as the voice for the Midwestern scene, V, which I don't recall that, but I guess he was. <laughs> I, I always thought they would be more than like the Necros were, but I guess uh, I guess these guys were usurping it all along, probably. Uh, <laughs> He was establishing his own musical legacy in in Motor City as the was Shockley Shock was Shock Shock Shocky Barker 
for the meat men. Okay. Um, as the story goes, the name came from a digestive, digestive game he used to play with Touch and Ghost co-writer DS would enumerate. Anyways, I don't know if there's anything else worth. I, I guess there is some stuff you want to keep reading that, but because uh, there's links to Zappa and uh, Alex Lichen. Oh, the East Coast hardcore scene established as well and all that. But anyways, the biggest thing is that I just wanted to just to, you know, this touch and go label. Um, whatever was going on, and I, I don't believe that the guys from Necros, I don't believe it at all, that they were some kind of part of any... <laughs> I don't think many of them are. I think they believe the shit that they're preaching. I, I think they believe the ideas that they uh, yeah. are polluting with society. Um, like I said, uh, I believe maybe a person like Ian McKay might know what's going on because, again, his hands are all over the world and uh, attached directly to modern movements. You know, So, yeah, I, I, I don't speculate too much uh, um, on punkers doing it. There's some definitely fishy backgrounds and genealogies to many punkers. This, this, That's the this key. This is the thing. This is the thing. And they're not punk. You know, you know, you can't really be a punk band and have. I guess you can by literal definitions, but I mean, um, they're the whole thing of anti-establishment is the one of the the spine of punk rock basically. But you got like an Ian McKay band with Ever Hansen, whose dad's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. I mean, really. Yeah, like, I mean, you can't, we can <laughs> go to Skull and Bones a few different directions. Um, I, I believe, uh, just to take a tangent, there's a couple subhumans bands out there in some of my research I'm doing, and one band's from Canada, and they were involved in the Quamish Five bombing, and they bombed a Lytton um, missile development site in Canada. And I believe, I'm almost there, I just need to run it through Jeannie, um, I believe one of the bombers is related to the wife of Skull and Bones uh, Buckley. <laughs> oh, um, I can't, well, the guy that's on TV debating Gore Vidal, Buckley, I can't remember. He's in Skull and Bones. I believe, you know, they're connected through marriage. You know, a punk rock dude is in a in a Canadian terrorist organization. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> well, the the thing is, is um, yeah, if you so, if you know, Ivor Hansen, his dad is in the Council on Foreign Relations. Hmm. If you knew him, he was he played in uh, what did he play in? I can't remember right now. I want to say Teen Idols, but. No, he played in State of Alert with Henry Rollins. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. That, that figures. So that, oh, yeah. This, this, is, this is where uh, things, I think, start going sour. Um, guys like Henry Rollins. I, I don't... Things started going downhill, I think. That's my personal opinion. Others could say otherwise, but my personal opinion, I look at like Henry Rollins. I look at uh, whatever is going on in Washington... DC scene and what was going on up in Lansing, uh, things started going sour and it, it just became uh, almost impossible for the movement to really succeed because of it. 
just because of uh, the. This is where like the attitude things get really. I mean, what do you mean? What do you mean? What what did I'm just confused. Well, like, okay, we'll look at uh, V. So, like, P, V stuff, you know, the songs, you know, it's like, we got here, we got, uh, and I know, you know, the, the V you say it's all about, you know, tongue-in-cheek, and it's just about, you know, uh, nothing sacred and, and taking everything. Yeah. But at the same token, it was also kind of, in a way, realistically, uh, making the scene, mocking the scene, making a mockery of it. I mean, you have, like, tooling for anus and... Yeah. All these other stupid band or names, you know, and it's like, and I guess you know they have a right to do whatever they want to do, but um, the same token, it's just like you know, really, is this? It, it just seems like everything goes just. It, I guess maybe it could have been my own youthful naivety at the time too. Is like I was hoping for something much more than it was. And then uh, when you had, you know, because, you know, it's like you see what's going on in the world. You see, you know, this is the 80s, the, you know, the era of Reagan and uh, and this me generation thing going on. And just everything was just um, sucked. <laughs> it really did. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. The adjective is it all sucked. And there's like, hey, maybe we can really make a difference here. Maybe there is something here where, you know what, where, you know, you can really be a real independent band doing your own thing and making your own music. And it, but it wasn't about that at all. It was about even, even the sound, everything got compromised and, and maybe others would, I'm sure others will disagree with me. And others will even say I'm being a, a traitor to the movement, but I, the movement wasn't. It was different for me. It was like, okay, so the the the, the uh, like for instance, uh, the Minutemen can do their thing, right? And they had their own sound. The Meat Puppets had their own sound. The uh, Necros had their own sound. Everyone had their own sound, and it was okay. And yet we still could emerge together, play music. But as time went on, the, the hardcore thing just became like this homogenous, sterile. It was like hearing the same song over and over and over again. Yeah, still what it is. Yeah. And that's not what, I don't believe that's what it was supposed to be. I believe it's just what's scientifically proven. So again, if it's manufactured, somebody developed it, and I believe it's what's scientifically proven. So with that idea, I I I jump over to, um, like when Hans Zuder talks about uh, music, I, I go into psycho, I think, I think of what I've learned from him or think I've learned from him is like uh, the psychobiology thing. <clears throat> if you think of the predominant, the most important thing to uh, punk music is the, is the, is the drums. That's the drums, the fast drum beat. And then the bass, the, the rhythm section, but primarily the drums, drums are tribal. They've been going on forever. Um, if you think about what is the most predominant part of rap music, probably one of the most debasing genres of music not across the board for sure but in you know gangster rap killing selling coke raping having sex with kids pissing on people like you know that's pretty debasing what's the primary function of that music too it's the bass which is a drum and it's a beat so i think this shit was engineered and that's why it's not going to change it's going to be 
because that is what the scientists have learned makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I hear a band start, you know, playing that drum beat with some fast guitar and some angry yelling with subliminal lyrics that are always leftists <laughs> jamming them up your ass. So, you know, that's, I think it's, you know, the drums, I think that might be the key of the, of the science of it. And again, well, I think that when I think of Hans Uter's work. It's absolutely what it is. It's like the three chord power, yeah. the three chord progression, power chord, screaming, you know, like the, uh, but it's just the drums. The drums are, it's always been that way. The drummer yep. makes, breaks the band, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the way it is. That's the, uh, with, imagine rap without bass. Not that I'm imagining you're a rap fan, but I mean, what would rap without bass be? Nothing. Nothing. It'd be poetry to, to treble. It'd be you know, poetry. Basic, and that's a repeat. That's a repeat of Ginsburg's shitty, culturally debasing poetry like Howl and all that other garbage. And um, well, and here's the know, other thing, too. You, when I look at it, it's like, okay, if I wanted, if we wanted to play out and we wanted to play music, uh, it was, it was, it, it, we're talking about mid-80s now. It was, and you're a teenager, and you want to play out. Well, it was being part of this scene, so you could, and then you could play out on a bar, and no one ever said anything. Amazingly, underage, and no one had a problem you playing in the bar though back in the eighties. Uh, but that was pretty much it. I mean, if you were a, a cover band, you know, playing Brown Eyed Girl, you weren't, and you were a teenager, a group of teenagers, you were, it just wasn't going to happen. But uh, but if the you played did. it, uh, huh? The accused did a cover of Brown Eyed Girl. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. well, you know, yeah, I know what you're saying. But yeah, I'm, but it, yeah. let's put it this way: the, the the folks from the '60s, '70s wouldn't be listening to them, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah right? they, yeah, they still want to hear the the original one. So, so it was weird. There was something going on. There was like this brief moment. Of musical freedom, and things were happening in Detroit. Things were happening in Toledo. Things were, and it wasn't just suburbia, although it was part, a big part of it. Because, um, but it was, it, it didn't last. It just was squashed before it even, almost before it started. Hardcore punk rock, it still goes on right now. It's bigger than ever. Well, that's not the. Well, I guess McKay's were twenty-five million. <laughs> well, I, I, well, no, no, no. People still buying Discord records and they suck. <laughs> well, I know. That's, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's not the same thing. Maybe it's because of uh, nostalgia or whatever. But uh, it was a different time. The '80s was a different time, and it was. Oh yeah. It wasn't even about selling the albums. It wasn't anything about even making a buck. It was just about. It was about the music. It was about really being independent. And I don't think that you know that was that was a threat, and I know it was a threat. The establishment, that was the the threat. It wasn't the music per se; it was the attitude. Yeah, of, and, and the ego, ego too. People want want attention, you know, <laughs> and punkers get attention from, from the rest of society and amongst themselves, and band members especially get attention. And there's probably some ego that's driving that, which drives DIY, which drives more bands, which drives more egos. Again, there's so many psychological uh, merry-go-rounds 
in punk rock. You can go and be a straight edger. You can be a racist. You can be a drug addict, an alcoholic, wear jeans, wear pantyhose, dress like a girl, dress like a cow. It's 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 anything. It's do what that will. Like I said, that that sentence was. It's magic. <laughs> it is magic. It is absolutely magic. So I'm looking forward to uh, Jose on uh, Sunday. So I hope you join us. So, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd love to. That's an amazing opportunity. I'm probably. I don't know if there's anything else you want to share right now about it. What we're talking about, but I think I've pretty much spent my wad for what I really can share. Except that uh, yeah, I was I, part of it, and I, and 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 I have to say I'm baffled and confused. I'm dazed and confused about the whole thing. What happened? What it was all about? And I and I really want I, I want to interview these other guys. I want to ear, interview the guys. What, what did it mean to them? Because yeah. what it what it meant to me was like a lifeline, uh, some kind of meaning. And well, maybe it was a reflection of how pathetic my own existence was at the time, and surely that's probably a big part of it. But I don't think I was alone in that. So yeah, I, it, it's um. You know, I it, it it'd be fun. I'd find it fun to talk to people, but I just don't know how to broach what my thesis is to their life that they've dedicated their whole world to. You know, so an, an example is if you know Mr. Swalla does join the conversation, like you know, personally, I'd like to be like, yeah. So is that a White Panther logo on your Facebook? Because that goes to John Sinclair again, you know. And that's well, 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 yeah, well, that's, that's, yeah, and that's, that's, uh, definitely have to do it, you know. And if they're willing to talk to us, it's, there's no point in being. I mean, we can talk to them in a way where you know. I mean, you and I are not their their enemy. If anything, we're trying to understand what the heck happened. I'm what almost at the point of being their enemy, though. Like, I'm almost at the point of um, going from dispassionate researcher to passionate, like, fuck you guys. Because <laughs> they, I, I am. I'm not kidding. Like, I have a blog, and I talk a lot of shit. And, and oh, yeah. uh, I have that's nothing to lose. You know, I, I'm not making money off this. I don't care. I want to substantiate other researchers' stuff. And if if they if they defend their shit with a bunch of um, you know, appeals to authority and lack of knowledge of history and completely refuse to listen, then, you know, fuck them. I, I really don't care. Um, <laughs> because, again, like, you know, I'm not getting revenge for my life. I did, I came out stronger probably. Um, I shook it off because the music, I knew the music made me angry. I, I was listening to Integrity and Ringworm. I was a bike messenger for more than a decade in Denver, and I listened to music while I did it. And, you know, you, there's some road rage when you're on a bicycle working and there's cars acting like idiots. So after a while, I realized that that music was adding like 40 to 50 percent more aggression and just general unhealthy thoughts to my life. And then I put it down and switched to the Smiths. And, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, this is, you know. I'm riding slower, you know, kind of tooling around, enjoying the sun. And, you know, I, I had the, the epiphany myself, like, I can't listen to that music anymore. And I wasn't mad at him then. But, again, like, I'm turning. Like, this is not a coincidence when it lines up with these theses perfectly. And people need to hear this. They need to hear it. If they were dupes, you know, I think they'd be interested. If they were part of it, you know, tell me. You know, if you got the ball, say it. You know, tell me what's going on. But other than that, like I said, I, I unfortunately, I'm – 
moving from dispassionate researcher to like, you know, I don't care. You guys are dicks. And this is, this is hurting society in general. And yeah, I'll, I'll debate it. I'll talk it. We can do some historical, uh, you know, uh, debates, uh, bring, bring things to light is all I'm trying to do. And Jan and those guys are doing that. And right. I, that's why I'm working with these guys. Cause they're, they've, they've helped me. Jose, Jose Barrera, um, help me get in touch with reality. That's a big statement, but I mean, <laughs> I went through, I went through, uh, when you go through these stages of wanting to know about the world, you read, you read, you read. Um, and then you, you come to this point of like, I don't even know what's real, whether ghosts are real, magic is real, demons are real, like Aleister Crowley doing shit real. Like I was like, oh, I got to keep an open mind to this shit. When I heard him, he shut all those doors. I, <laughs> I connected to reality. I connected to like this, this world being kind of like the matrix, but instead of us being plugged in, to like these, um, you know, osmosis cellular plug-in cells in an alien thing, we're just presented with a totally fake reality. And the fakery isn't that it's not tangible. It's that everything's contrived on a lie. Every, and that's the scary part is saying everything. Every, every, everything is. Well, yeah. It's everything. What I our, our heroes, people are like, yeah, Gandhi's a hero. He's a piece of shit. Look, go read a book. Read two or three books. You're going to be like, wow, I didn't know that. Because you weren't supposed to. It's weaponized history. It's weaponized anthropology. And then you go back and you go over it and you're like, holy shit, this whole thing's a big hoax. This whole well, this, well, this, is, a, this is a thing like when, when I look at like V and especially like he just came out with a new book, I guess, back in 2013, something like that. And I haven't really too, too much, but uh, just from him talking about it and some of the images. I mean, there's a certain point where you're like, okay, how much is this just self-promotion, uh, uh, sensationalism, or actually just trying to corrupt a few more people uh, and, and, and making a money, a buck off of trying to corrupt a, a new, a next generation of people. Mm-hmm. All this, you know, you know, I think both are the same. Yeah. yeah. I don't think they're separate categories. It's, you're you're put up on this pedestal, and the pedestal includes like um, being considered um, what, what what word am I looking for? Like being influential. So through the history, the, the the bullshit history about punk rock, they're like this band, this band, this band were influential, and it's bands like Black Flag, Minor Threat, Dead Kennedys, and they just repeat the same bands, so it becomes another one of them. War of the World's history <laughs> things. So I don't think they separate. Like I said. I believe some of them believe the bullshit they're saying. I don't know who really is in the know of what's going on. And if they did, would they care? You know, the money is the magic. The talismans are, you know, what they're chasing. A lot of them. Yeah. And he, it, the, ones, the, the characters that they, 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 they really prop up are, once again, you know, there's like the Sex Pistols. It's, uh, you know, where there's UK Black and America. Flag. Black Flag. Yeah, Black Flag it's constantly. True. We're not going to talk about what happened to the original singer and why did this guy show up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's always they regurgitate the same shit. That's part of the that's part of the program. That's that's a pattern that I'm definitely confident in saying is real because there's probably been millions of hardcore bands, but the same few hundred, less than a hundred. I I don't know. I'm speculating. 
uh, are regurgitated over and over again. And then there's a very small percentage that are regurgitated constantly. And they're full uh. of dubious, dubious people. So it's part of the War of the Worlds style mindfuck where they just say it enough times that it becomes true. And again, uh. over time, this has been going on for decades. You know, your generation, or not, I guess it's our generation, but, you know, uh, maybe those are a couple decades older than us or a decade older than us, uh, the very earliest punk bands had kids. Those kids have kids. So it's kind of been weaning, you know, into the into the population. And it's been put on the TV. And when you see bands like Green Day making millions and millions and millions of dollars, and other bands are still making millions of dollars. You know, they no effects is millionaires by miles. So are Bad Religion. All these punk bands are multimillionaires. Their record labels do millions of dollars in sales. Punkers have no clue of that. You know, they're running around dressed like black block anarchists eating fucking canned tuna on dried ramen, living in a cardboard box, raging against society while their musician is fucking living in a mansion in L.A. You know, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's very bullshit. Yeah, you got these kids breaking windows. You know, they get their dog hitchhike across the country, train hop. You know, they do all this shit. They run away from home. While 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 their masters on the other end of the on the other end of the CD are you know they're fucking prostitutes and children, they're starting clubs, labels, making millions and millions off of these victims. So that's why I said I'm turning. You know, I I, <laughs> I got nothing to lose. This is my opinion, and I'll stick to it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I you know I, I can't. I mean, I mean, I got really dis dis you know, enchanted and discouraged. You know as well so but really early i mean we're talking i was a senior in high school so it was maybe it's because i wasn't doing the drugs and i wasn't doing all the shit i was just seeing i was watching i was watching what was happening before my eyes and like this is man i put all my faith in this man maybe i should have uh, thought about you know a university or college to go to (laughs) but i wasn't ready so and i ended up having a crazy life by walking away, a much more a much more interesting life, I should say, than I never would have had if I stayed if I would have stayed in the punk thing. So, but at the same token, it affected my life, and and and, and like I said at the start of the show, it's like it was the best of times and the worst of times, and it really was. And and how do we define that? And how did how did that happen? You know. So what can we do that for the next generation, except you know, forewarn them about what's really going on? You know. It would be excellent to get a few. Uh, it would be excellent to get a few like uh, not the talking head, talking head types like Ian McKay to have an epiphany because he's smarter than the world, you know. So you can't really get through to him or Henry Rollins because they're pig-headed talking puppets jamming their bullshit down people's throats. But if you could find another random band dude like maybe Mr. Swalla and be like, "Hey, dude, check this out," and then. You know, if he disagrees with it and asks some questions, answer the questions he asks for evidence, give him it. Like, and have one dude open their mind and be like, God damn, I didn't know that was happening. That would, be, <laughs> that would satisfy me because he would tell somebody and that person would tell somebody and hopefully be another member of the band or their ex-band or call somebody up or, or pass it on on Facebook. You know, like, um, that would be a great goal, you know, just to... Not convert them. I hate to use that language, but just, I mean, have somebody look at this, just at least through the lenses of my opinion at this point, and offer their opinion, and then debate it. That's the thing. I'm ready for a debate. Like, 
It might be a slow debate through letters and like correspondence chess style, but I, I'm well researched. I got my citations and I got the dubiousness and, you know, I, I just want to wake some people up. Ah, well, sounds like a good, a good goal. And, uh, uh, it, let's uh, tell people uh, what uh, about your blog, and um, and then also we're going to hopefully get together on Saturday, right? With uh, with Sean from yeah, okay. Um, so, tell- so I have a there's a blog called uh, Four Horses Asses of the Apocalypse, <laughs> and it's myself and friends of Hoaxbusters. Uh, these guys reached out with their research, and we just started working together. And more people are reaching out since I uh, was on Gnostic Media, and there's some excellent research being dug out. So there's like a little – I generated a little – we've generated a little buzz, and um, it's buzzing along. But uh, to go to the website, the uh, address is fourhorsesasses.blogspot.com. And this is not a news site. This is not, <laughs> this is, it's exactly what it is. Four horses asses. You're going to find some history and you're going to find some shit talking and, and some ad hominem um, attacks. So <laughs> uh, research does come through there. We take uh, requests through comments, you know, questions of bands. We'll put some shit together. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where we're, we just popped something up because it needed to just start a stream, like just start a stream of this stuff coming out because it's just building up on the computer and I'm already lost in it because there's so much. I can't remember the stuff I've found that I've yeah. not talked about. So it's so vast. It's amazing. And there's so many, there's so many layers to this. And, you know, for me, I see where you guys are coming from and I value it, but you know, I'm looking at it from my own personal point of view and I imagine you are too in a, in a way, but the psychological and, uh, it also goes along with the cultural and social manipulation. You know, how did I get to where I was at that point and how that affected me? And not only did it affect me, but how it affected me afterwards, even after leaving the scene in my 20s. And because yeah. it does, it, you know, this goes back to that article on how it, it, it did arrest my development. Yeah. So I think uh, Hans, I think Hans Uter uses the term like perpetual adolescence. Yeah. I think that's the term I heard him use. Uh, maybe it might I might be off there, but adolescence is there, and I think the idea of perpetualism is there too. But that rang a bell. I was like, golly, because again, I was a bicycle messenger for uh, almost almost 13 years off and on in the same city, and that is a punk rock job. Um, originally it wasn't, but now it's just its own culture. It's disgusting, actually. It's, it's, it's all but gone because of technology. And it went from like 50 in the late nineties when I started to probably a handful now because of technology, but before it fizzled out, like it was about fashion and about, uh, people just dressing like bike messengers, people pretending to be, it was a crazy phenomenon. (laughs) Bike messenger movies came out with like, uh, Gordon Levitt Smith and all this weird shit happened. And then it, I was like, what? <laughs> this is a job. You know, <laughs> this, is a, uh, this is a job for scumbags that like to go to the happy hour every single day of their life. <laughs> you know, and that's what uh, I did. What we did. My well, it, did. it was bizarre for me. Like I look at my teen years. And so my options that were presented to me, only because of my own circumstances, family and everything else. And, and uh, and the culture and all that. But so I grew up a Mormon in, you know, the Toledo area. So there's like, uh, 
there's like only one church and like a, maybe a hundred people in the whole area that are Mormons. So very <laughs> no no connections religiously, but severely uh, affected by that cult. And then then there was the cult of the punk scene, and, and then you know there was I mean talk about somebody who just fucking lost. Excuse my language, but it was just I was just so fucking lost. I had no idea what was going on. And there was nobody in my life to say, sit me down and say, listen, this is what you need to do. These are the books you need to read. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I didn't even have a, a, a counselor at school. It wasn't a thought in my head, and no one ever reached aside and said, hey. <laughs> Pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, maybe you ought to think about your future. No one, there was nobody there. So, what, I mean, there's a, one of the things I noticed about that, the scene, especially at that time, was that, and you'd, when I lived in London, it was that way too. And if you, uh, a lot of the people that gravitated to the punk scene were that, the people that were lost. Yeah. I was one. Yeah. I was an alcoholic, abused childhood. Uh, abuse in the childhood, yeah. And then my friends were shit. It's just they're like your family, but they weren't violent. It was just a different form of a dysfunctional family that was a lot more fun. Yeah, and I'm glad that you say that because it's like that. You just absolutely that's this the shit. It was the same way for me. And it's like, uh, did I even develop one meaningful relationship in it? Yeah, I was, they, uh, or, uh, just more cynicism and more, you know, just. <laughs> If I, I've I've actually reached out to my old buddies, and uh, they won't even return my call anymore. I mean, um, I just I sent them, I emailed them my stuff anyway. I, literally, I was like, email here you go, pussy. <laughs> and um, cause they're like, he he was like, get to the point where my friend Jason would be like, he'd answer the phone when he'd see me calling, and be like, CIA punk rock department, and I'm like, come on, dude, like. So he was just, he just, and then he just quit answering the call. He's like, I don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> it's like, come on, dude. You know, and then it was over. He just stopped. And I hadn't talked to him forever. And we went to shows together. Uh, he was, he had a dysfunctional childhood. I, we became roommates right when he got out of jail. I met him. He needed a place to live. Hey, let's go. We became roommates. You know, like that's how it worked in the punk rock thing. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, but for me, it was, I don't know, I, I never even, maybe because of the age, maybe because of all sorts of things, but I don't, I, like I said, I don't think I'm, I, I never made a meaningful relationship Yeah. with any of them. I don't and think lot, I have in my life, in reality, now that I look back with what I know now. <laughs> well, I, I didn't even know this stuff. I mean, I'm just now being introduced to a lot of this stuff myself, but... Yeah. Uh, Back then, it was just, um, it was like a group of people, uh, misfits, if you will, that uh, incapable of establishing meaningful relationships, hanging out together. I mean, it was doomed from the start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and nobody seemed to, you know, either care or know or whatever, you know. So, I don't know. I can definitely see how the you know the 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 oligarchy could take advantage of it, reward some of them to kind of manage it and 
keep a, a lid on it and to monitor it. But um, yeah, I would have to say 90 plus percent of all those, now you have to be 99.9 percent of the people in the scene were just misfits like the, like you and I, man, just sucked up. Yeah. And, you know, and, but that's the way, it's just like religion. It's like, that's how it always is. You know, it's just like um, whether it's the Mormon church or when I was an Alcoholics Anonymous, I was Mr. AA and started meetings and sponsored guys for seven years and and I'm no longer part of that. I'm just Isn't that Scientology, right? AA and Synanon and Narcanon, isn't that shit linked to Scientology process church? Some of it is. Well, definitely AA is also linked to Crowley and... <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, Wilson was somehow influenced by Crowley's book, uh, Diary of Drunk Fiend, and influenced by Crowley. And these guys all, this Mary Band... Men, also, by the way, he's starting in Ohio, just like the Church of Satan. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a great little uh, nugget of knowledge now. Yeah. So, and, and is there a connection at all with any of that? I don't know. Yeah, I haven't ran that through yet. I've been, like I said, this week I read a book and I'm digesting it into the brain. But well, yeah, i got to go back and revisit everything. I want to talk to Todd about that and say, you know, hey man, did you have any connection to this? Did you know about this back in the day? <laughs> it was around back then, and you know, Necros, you know, the the one album that they have is kind of well known. Is um, oh gosh, what's the name of it? The one with the two guys like like doing a satanic ceremony up in the black hoods and all that. Anyways, um. Yeah, you know, I was like, where did you get these ideas? Why did you do this, you know? <laughs> what were you doing? Were you guys into this stuff at the time? Were you just, you know, being yourself sensational? Were you just, you know, what was what was the manifestation? What caused the manifestation of the necros? What was all about, you know? Because this guy affected my life, influenced my life, influenced a lot of guys' lives, regardless of if they bought it, if we bought into maybe the message itself. Yet the message was running through my head. Yeah. yeah. What was it all about this? You know, will he join us? I don't know. Maybe after listening to a couple of my shows, he's like, I don't know. This guy's maybe trouble. <laughs> well, you think about it in another, like, Jose Barrera comparison, like, so he was talking about when people would pledge allegiance to the flag every morning at school or whatever, you're, you're charging the flag with emotion and recanting a chant, you know, and putting your hand in your heart. So you're you're charging it with magic, you know, but really just emotion, and you're subconsciously doing things. When you're listening to these punk um, songs and you happen to memorize the lyrics, most punk is yelling, so you're yelling literal debasing mantras with one of them uh, drum beats to change your psychobiology. So, like I said, I see this as, you know, this is where people are like, oh, you lost me there, you're a loon. But uh, Stuart Holm calls this an advanced form of Kabbalah. And if we attach Jose Barrera's idea, you know, it's just pretty much just mind control. And, and it's coming from technocrats to actually understand how the mind works through like projects like MKUltra and whatnot. So it's, you know, if you look at it with this set of lenses, punk rock is, a bunch of, you know, possibly misfit men, usually, some girls occasionally, a lot more nowadays, but angry, 
getting uh, getting riled up with this drum beat and fast guitar, and then screaming with the anger emotion or adrenalized emotion these mantras. So like Screeching Weasel, a band that I used to love, had a song called I Want to Be a Homosexual. So imagine a bunch of men running in a circle, repeating, I want to be a homosexual, I want to be a homosexual. Like, think of the, 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 the possibilities when it comes to, like, programming and the, you know, the, the alleged science I'm uh, speculating being developed to, you know, alter us. Like, it's, we're saying the craziest shit ever. I was singing about, I was singing pro-abortion lyrics. In the anti-Christian lyrics, um, constantly when I listen to a band called Christ on a Crutch that I like a lot, and uh, one of the Christ on a Crutch members went on to be in the Foo Fighters, which has a bunch of crazy dudes uh, with crazy stories. But so, yeah, like I was running around singing pro-abortion anti-Christian shit, <laughs> and but I wasn't just telling you. I was just charging myself with that. I was just repeating it in my brain, and eventually. You know, I never really had a positive stance on abortion, but I was against Christians for a chunk of time where I would debate it, you know. So I don't know if that's a fact or a phase of people going through a learning processes, but it happened. And I ran around saying it, and I screamed it with emotion, you know, when I was singing lyrics. Yeah, I understand that. Tell, tell us about the role and what you've discovered about him and his connections with everything. Because that's one thing, it's the, the higher... It's just like, uh, well, Stain, Stainbrook, John Stainbrook, and all. How do these guys, how do these guys end up doing uh, commercials and jingles for MTV? <laughs> and a couple of nobodies from Toledo. Why are they doing that stuff at that time? You know. Why is the BBC riddled with pedophiles? I feel that they find compromised, uh, compromised or easily compromisable people, compromise them. And jam them in these positions where they have to do what they're told. There you go. There's there's a there's a possible possible thesis idea right there for you. And that's kind of where I would first run if I started researching that exact specific idea. Um, Plus, they, they, they have to have connections too. You know, I mean, John ends up being the head of the um, the Republican Party <laughs> in Toledo. You know, but the guy yeah. who's Stain, Stain is the punk band that's kind of known, and um, he was well, always doing his, his punk shows in the eighties, and and, uh, and then all of a sudden he's like doing commercials and jingles for MTV, and then he's, you know, yeah, he's local, he's not national, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> he can be just he can hold wield a, a lot of power locally, you know. Yeah, it's your family and all that kind of stuff. So, what's up with that? You know, what? Um, who are? Yeah, so Grohl doesn't Grohl have some kind of uh, interesting pedigree himself? Um, not, yes and no. Um, his dad had an interesting job. Um, so, uh, Dave Grohl's dad, his name is James Harper Grohl, and uh, I'm just gonna kind of skim him because this stuff is thick and deep, but I'll get to the meat and the potatoes for sure, but he, um, he had, uh, he was a bohemian <laughs> for a while, and he, he speaks of, like, uh, um, 
He speaks of like Allen Ginsberg or Burroughs. I'm going off memory here, so bear with me. Um, but he speaks of Allen Ginsberg or Burroughs hitting on him. So he was in a bohemian circle at a young enough age that, uh, and in the presence of Ginsburg or Burroughs, I don't remember which one. Um, so that's a that's a that's that's interesting, uh, considering where we're about to go. He worked for Stars and Stripes Army newspaper in Stuttgart. He was a senior vice president of uh, the Savings and Loan League, um, and he also was personal assistant to a guy named Robert uh, Alfonso Taft Jr. And <laughs> Robert Alfonso Taft Jr. is uh, he's he's a member of the Trilateral Commission. Um, like a ton of the players, went to Harvard. He was in the United States Senate, went to Yale. And his dad is Robert A. Taft, and he is a Harvard Yaley as well, went to both colleges. His dad is William Howard Taft, and now we're getting into members of Skull and Bones and, you know, Yale and the Phi Beta Kappa Society. And William Howard Taft's dad is Alfonso Taft, and he's one of the founders of Skull and Bones. So the way this links to Dave Grohl is, again, his dad, amongst many different uh, temporary careers, was special assistant to Robert A. Taft, Jr. Um, and then going back, uh, I believe the Tafts were out of Ohio, now that I think about it, too. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm almost sure they're Republican. I'm almost 1,000%. Uh, 99.9% sure they're Republicans. So he went from being in the bohemian circles with beat poets to working for conservative slash Republican skull and bones lineage, you know, <laughs> like, and, and, and a funny story is uh, how Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters actually dedicated uh, one of their albums to John Kerry during the Kerry Bush um, battle for presidency. He was uh, proselytizing Kerry and dedicated one of his albums and like did a mini like I think you know I don't want to make mistakes because I'm going off of memory here, but um, he did like some shows, maybe a mini tour for Kerry or something like that. But definitely dedicated the the album to Kerry. And if we think about the election, Kerry was Skull and Bones, Bush was Skull and Bones, and James Grohl's dad worked in the lineage of the founders of Skull and Bones. So when you also think that, I think this is true, I think only 15, um, 15 members of Skull and Bones are tapped a year. <laughs> so if, um, if they've been around 100 years, and I can't, you know, let me see if I can pull this up here, just just to give us an idea of how, rare Skull and Bones members are. Um, they started in 1832, so 1932. So there's probably less than 500 or less than 600. Uh, you know, I'm not doing accurate math right now, but less than 600 ever. And we got the triumvirate during the 2004 election. Um, that's That's an amazing coincidence. <laughs> you know, yeah. Skull and Bones running running against Skull and Bones, and <laughs> uh, like I said, Dave Dave Grohl's dad worked with uh, was special assistant to a direct uh, bloodline member to one of the founders of Skull and Bones. Like, and again, through the course of all of history, there's 
there, there's probably less than 600. Again, I, that could be wrong, but I mean, there's definitely less than a thousand, you know, in history, like ever. And some of them are dead. So it, the, the population of Bonesman shrinks with time. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll I mean, the, well, the, if, 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 if they actually push the task, they're going to be like, the odds of that are pretty insane, but coincidences happen. That's, that'd be like the end of the report. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, um, what have you done any kind of research connecting uh, Satanism, Luciferianism to all this movement? It's it's peppered everywhere, yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, I mean, that grows, you know. Well, that, that's guys. not even. I don't even consider that. You know, that I don't even. That, uh, just, it, it, is, is, is it just you know a teenage angst, or is it uh, uh, something more? I don't know. You know. Well, people you know. like Genesis. P. Orridge, who was in um, Psychic TV, and that was like uh, industrial and punk, but they had their hands all over punk. That dude's a literal Satanist, and um, there's a magazine, International Times, and it was kind of like a counterculture magazine that touched on punk. And let me think here. It has all kinds of Satanists. <laughs> and even like what I call, um, you know, count other counterculture leaders like Alexander Trucci and whatnot. So I got to just give give my opinion real quick on the Satanism thing. I think that's a controlled group too. Like if you look through history on revered um, alternate religions, pagan religions, weirdos, whatever. So we're talking Michael Aquino. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Aleister Crowley, all these people, Alice Bailey, they all had a military background or a military handler very close, also financing the stuff. So from my experience in research doing this and other research, it's starting to appear like all the Satanist shit is manufactured from the military, literally. And I know that sounds absurd, but I would love to show my connections. Michael Aquino is a general. Um he uh, founded the Temple of Set. He was at Presidio um, in the 80s. They paraded him around all the daytime TV shows dressed like Eddie Munster to <laughs> and, and talking about the satanic panic pedophile abuse stuff across the board, like Geraldo and all those daytime TV shows that moms are watching. And what they do there is they instantly discredit Satanism. When you look at the leader who's also a colonel <laughs> of psychological warfare. Just got to get that all out there. Um, they look at a colonel, and he's dressed literally like Eddie Munster. It becomes absurd. You know, so it's a psyop. It's a psyop. So Satanism is fake. Pedophilia is real. But Satanism is real. None of this shit's real because that guy looks like Eddie Munster. And there, he's on every channel looking like Eddie Munster, you know. And it appears like uh, people love Ted Gunderson, but it looks like Ted Gunderson was tied with him. Um, it looks like he was his controlled opposition. Ted Gunderson was never effective in a debate versus uh, Michael Aquino on daytime TV. So that's a red flag right there. He was just really big and um, very ineffective. You know, I think I would present a better argument against Aquino than Ted Gunderson <laughs> for the uh, – Evidence, lack of evidence, but at least the coincidence that there's a military man, high-ranking military officer, to be more specific, always very close, or some guy in uh, spycraft, like 
L. Ron Hubbard or um, Aleister Crowley, MI5, you know, like, give me a break, you know. <laughs> it's, it's part of the puppet show. It's part of the fake magic reality. It, it's just, I, I don't know what we can pick through as far as bubbles of culture or ideas or groups of people that are, isn't manufactured anymore. It's almost like that card game Illuminati um, that everybody, you know, looks at the cards and, and shows prophetic cards. I'm not into all that, but I own the game, never played it, just wanted to look at the cards, so I bought everything. And uh, it's almost like that. So it's everybody's a subgroup of something. So you got like baristas and they dress like hipster communists, you know, so it's a culture. Bike messengers went from like dudes that were athletic cyclists to drunk bums that didn't, you know, wanted freedom to hipster culture. It went to a culture. It's a culture right now. Um, you know, everything, like I said, it just, <laughs> I don't know if anything's organic. I'm trying to just be myself now and not what I've contained myself to when I limit myself to labeling myself. So now I'm just like, uh, I, I guess technically a ranter because I'm just out ranting and raving. <laughs> uh, so well, me, I'm, I'm me, a small me, ranter. So. I know we're going to deviate greatly here, but I wanted to uh, talk about this Herbert Arthur Sloan because um, apparently somehow, some way, he was very instrumental in this, uh, in, you know, the satanic, you know, construct that they've given us. This is here, uh, Dr. or no, excuse me, Herbert Arthur Sloan was the first person known to have organized and led a specifically satanic religious group. His name was Ophite Clotus Sethanes Sloan, a World War II U.S. Army veteran, barber, spiritual minister, numerologist, card and tea leaf reader, hypnosis, and inventory medium, formed a group in Cleveland, Ohio, right after World War II, 1948, and also headed his local branch of the organization, Our Lady of Endor Coven. As Sloan changed locations, the headquarter of the fight, Hotus Sethanes, relocated with him, first to Mishawaka, and then South Bend, Indiana. Um, in the 1950s, then in Toledo, Ohio, the 1960s, where it remained until Sloan's death in 1975. It is estimated that the membership of his group numbered fewer than a dozen at any given time, according to one contemporary account. There were first, there were five local members. Despite his importance in history and Satanism, Sloan's life has been poorly documented. This article represents a great deal of original research into Sloan's Satanism and his related occult, mythical, and sexual interests, along with glimpses of what his life was like year by year. It is offered in as a bouquet of information from researcher and Writer Catherine uh, Yarwinwood, Yarwinwood, that's Y R O N 
W-O-D-E, to her delightful satanic husband, Naga Siva Yarwood, with love and laughter. And then it says here, uh, he was born in 1905 in Rossburg, Ohio. In 1908, uh, Herbert Sloan sees the horned god uh, say, say this in the woods of Ohio. And in 1919, 1920, Herbert Sloan's high school dropout in Ohio. And in 1928, Herbert Sloan's barber marries Lillian May Harris, clerk in Akron, Ohio. In 1932, Herbert Sloan, barber with Lillian May Sloan, Mansfield, Ohio. In 1932, Herbert Sloan, spiritual, spiritualist reading in consultation sign, Stolden, Mansfield, Ohio. In, in 1933, Herbert A. Sloan Barber, Mansfield, Ohio. This is a big deal because there was a lot of uh, shenanigans and some, uh, 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 I guess it was his wife ended up going to prison or something like that over it. Herbert uh, Sloan, this is 1933, imagine that, spiritualist minister with uh, uh, Eden uh Brandon Mansfield, Ohio. Mansfield, Ohio is also well known for uh, its uh, dark occultic bullshit Satanist <laughs> mind control BS. But anyways, it goes on and on and on. Um, the biggest thing is somehow after World War II, he decides uh, at the same year uh, with uh, what's-his-face uh, from the... Uh, Oh gosh, what's his name? The Scientology. Um, oh, uh, yeah, same year, right? It was the same year, 1948, somewhere around that time. <laughs> so the, they're starting all these cults, and, and there's these guys coming out of the military and thinking, you know, we could just do whatever we want. Now, is that because of their experience in the military? And, you know, after seeing all the butchery and anti-humanistic behavior that just as they say, screw it, I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, or is there something else going on? I don't know. I personally think there's something else going on. I don't think it was anything organic or grassroots or profundry on any level. I think it was uh, military operations. Um, I have no, you know, there's only speculation, I got to say that, but I mean, it, you turn over enough, like, true data and just let it lay there and then let it absorb in your brain or, or track it and analyze it, and you see definitive patterns. And, um, yeah, I don't think L. Ron Hubbard got out. Like, that guy, Scientology is so, so important in these conversations because the richest of the rich of the acting actors acting about acting are Scientologists. It's a network for the ultimate actors of this fake world where everything's an act. They're acting out, you know, like they're all Scientologists. I mean, all, all, you know, the, the Scientologist nest in Hollywood is baffling. It needs to not be like, 
well, they're just crazy in California. It needs to be analyzed as, like, what the fuck are they doing? You know, some people are like, they must have it right. You know, you got to pay out your ass your whole time there. You know, all these guys are doing it. You know, it's how getting uh, so the group of actors just calling actors as a group of social you know the construct and social people there's actors acting you know for money um why are they why are the modern ones polarized towards l ron hubbard's organic you know um project after the military and i don't know if you know about l ron hubbard's connections to like jack parsons but sure jack parsons, yeah that's that's a big red flag, <laughs> you know. So that's like those are the things where I was like wondering. So is magic real? Were these two fucking idiots out there really trying to make Gollum next to a nuclear bomb? Were they literally doing that? And why does it work? You know. And I'm like, that's when I'm like, I can't tell what's real. But then I now I'm comfortable saying that's all bullshit psyop. It's bullshit psyop. It's multi-layer psyop. It's to give people, smart people like myself, you know, uh, a chance to stumble up and, and accept bullshit as truth. It's a chance, chances for many minds to make many mistakes, believe in the wrong things, fear the wrong things, which is the primary motive of uh, all this mind control is, I believe, states of fear, different states of fear. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also, so, and, and, also it, and also you got these, like you say, compromised, like we're going back to Sloan, his, his wife, Lillian May. Sloan. It talks about here. It has like these articles from different newspapers. And this was Lillian May Sloan was arrested in December 1937 and indicted on May 4th, 1938, as a result of an FBI investigation into interstate prostitution, then commonly called white slavery in the newspaper accounts. The report is from Zanesville. Uh, snake signal, Saintsville, Ohio, May four, nineteen thirty eight. So you got these. There was this. Yeah, I mean, what are these people? It's, it's first of all, they just mostly were just compromised people to begin with, and lack yeah, broken of people. integrity. Broken people with lack of really many integrity. A lot of these guys are also, you know, uh, snake oilsmen and con artists looking for an opportunity. Um, to start, you know, you look at Hubbard, and or if you look at Bill Wilson of AA, or or this guy, you know, these, these you know, hey, the opportunity to start a religion, and although they say that it was very small in Toledo, um, is that true? I don't know. Who knows? In you know. in the '90s, just coincidentally, the the best bands out of Ohio, and I don't know what city, but um, the bands that I liked. And again, this is like 90s. They might have started in the 80s, but still they were 90s hardcore. Were um, Integrity, as I'd mentioned, with a guy who sells processed church memorabilia and, you know, sings about him. And he actually, Charles Manson actually contacted that guy, Dwid, and asked him to make a record. I mean, so there's weirdness. Um, but there's another band called Ringworm, uh, and I think it's Cleveland. And... Back then, it, I was oblivious to this, but now that I'm researching um, and such last half a year, um, I wanted to listen to Ringworm because I used to love them, but it made me angry. It did. It's 
super hard and heavy and angry and uh, yelling and uh, talking about, uh, you know, Antichrist topics. But I actually pulled it up on the computer to hear it, and I looked at the cover of the CD I had, and it was the same one I had before, but it never resonated. Uh, but it was just literally a literal picture of Baphomet only. It's called The Promise. And I was like, holy shit, that was like my favorite CD. And so I don't have any evidence to support what my, um, you know, and I haven't even dug this out too deep, but I still got fun stuff to talk about with it. But there is a satanic element in Ohio um, in my hypothesis um, because two of the hardest 90s bands were overtly satanic. Uh, They were linked and they were awesome in my opinion. And looking back now, I can see in Baphomet on the cover of this Ringworm uh, album. And again, the album's called The Promise, and that's all it is, is Baphomet. And I was like, that is what that was. Holy shit, that's Baphomet. And now that I know who Baphomet is, it's mind-blowing to me. But back then, I had no clue. I just figured it was some ironic devil worship picture. But you know, both, those bands, both, those, both those bands are from Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. And they were heavy and hard and... When I talk about drums making the hair on the back of my neck stand up, th- those two bands did it. I used to, there was a short period of time when I raced mountain bikes, and not at an expert level or anything like that, but I raced mountain bikes for fun. And I would list, I'd put a Walkman a, or a Discman in my pocket, and I would eat mushrooms and listen to Ringworm while I raced mountain bikes. And a lot of the races were in the desert. And I literally did that, you know, and I, I do well in the class I was racing, <laughs> but that, that was my hobbies was eating mushrooms, listening to ringworm and racing and competitive mountain bike races. And I know that it sounds fantastic, but I've, I've done crazy shit. <laughs> but yeah, like looking back at it, it was, um, like I said, the cover was Baphomet and I was just like, holy shit, that's, it's mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the integrity stuff overlaps with process church ideas or whatever, like uh, one of their uh, album covers. I can't remember the connection, but it has the, the phrase, oh, humanity is the devil. That's what it is. And that's a phrase from the process church. And that's the name of their album. Um, so they're there. You know, so we talk about them like injecting poisonous ideas like Dwid is. He moved into Europe and he like plays in you know overtly satanic bands, saying overtly satanic stuff, selling process church memorabilia. And again, like like I said, the the four you can order you can go online to his his website and order a four pie. That's the symbol, the four pie or four p. Um, it's like kind of almost like a swastika, a teeny bit, but it's called the four p symbol. And you can order one for six dollars and sixty six cents. You know, like, this dude's capitalizing on the irony, or he's full-blown satanic. And I believe he's full-blown satanic, um, you know, because, again, like, Charles Manson contacted him to make a record. It wasn't the other way around, which is what I would imagine would happen. Like, Henry Rollins produced, um, little, little do people know, he produced, uh, no, SST Records produced a Manson album. And SST had the Minutemen, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, all those guys. And they pressed five records only, and Henry Rollins owns two, and Manson owns three. So what the fuck are they doing that for? It's punk rock irony, man. That's punk rock. So punk rock becomes anything and everything. Do what that will. Yeah, pretty much. 
I mean, it seems it seems like there is a really strong satanic element in it. Maybe we're just like I said. I, I really feel. Uh, I'll say I this: was, I was spared. I was spared by whatever happened, being rejected and everything, and not that things happened in the way I wanted to. You know, this is Let's easy see. statement to corroborate with you saying it looks like there's a satanic element because again, I'm I'm just giving little pieces. This the the another congruent statement is almost across the board punk is anti-christian almost across the board almost yeah. i mean literally that's a punk topic is religion and politics that's staples of punk rock um so like whether it's satanic or not it's almost across the board uh anti-christian so yeah. I'm not saying antichrist. I'm saying it talks shit about Christianity across the board. Well, you know, there's certainly a lot of reasons to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. I, but, but again, for, I don't but, think but, that they're doing it but, out of waking people up. I believe it's part of the um, shift in ideas, too. You know, they're shifting the idea. Like, that's why, uh, you know, all this stuff is coming out now, like, there's probably like point zero 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 one percent of the population are transgender children needing to use an opposite sex bathroom, but almost <laughs> like eighty percent of people in America know about that story. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's still controlling ideas for a micro micro microcosm of humanity, and um. Yeah, I don't think I don't. You know, that's that's put that's put that's labeled into like the Christian Christians don't want that. No, dude, I don't want it. You know, and I'm not going to church. No, I don't want that. If my daughter has to pee next to a boy. I will. I will. I will rant. You know, I, I would rant. I would have no problems with it either. I, I will take on all the the trolling social gender or the social justice motherfucking idiots. And you know, like fuck that, dude. They they're ramming shit into our culture and saying it's the culture you know so another example is like they used to be like yeah maybe like one in 15 men are gay and then it's like drops to like one in 10 men are gay then they're like one in eight men are gay and eventually we're like one in three men are gay you know and that's is that fucking true i doubt it but because the tv says so we start to believe it and you know like all right everybody's fucking gay gotta be cool shut up Sign me down. You know, you you got to reserve yourself. You can't be a ranter. You got to be a passive. You know, you got to live and let live, man. You got to understand, man. He is whatever he thinks he is. I'm not against him. Cut your dick off. Do whatever you want, man. Get it off the TV. Yeah. Get it off the TV. Well, well, isn't it interesting too with the uh, punk scene, especially you know, it was like a, a place for um, for folks to be who are gay. Especially, I noticed a lot of lesbians. Yeah, a lot of lesbians. I noticed a lot in the punk scene. A lot of bitch or not? Excuse me, not bitches, butches, butch type <laughs> women. Maybe bitches too. There's a lot of bitches too. But you know what I'm saying? It was, it was, uh, yeah. And uh, then you see like a guy like V again, who is capitalizing on it. And he's saying, well, you know, it's just tongue in cheek, and I'm just there to try to agitate and irritate and just have fun doing it. But was he really just doing it, or has he, you know? Well, if you think about it, he opens that 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 story with that 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 author opens a story with Freud, and if we just add another um, technocratic Freudian statement, it's called Freudian slips. 
So <laughs> that's technically is a Freudian slip, and it's real. You know, like he's citing Freud. <laughs> right. So you know, you know what's what what's what's you know is it just to sell records and to get a, some uh, recognition and publicity alone, or is it also, well, you know, does somebody is maybe encouraging him to do that because of uh, the social programming and the, you know, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times you just, you just well, you just, you just, you, it's a total. If you're going to change something, it's a total assault. It's everywhere. It's on the television and. And in these uh, subcultures, is everything you know what I mean? Change everything. So whatever well, group you can get a hold of. You know. And another thing I haven't mentioned is, um, and this is a behemoth, so I can't really even talk too much about it because it's so massive. But one of the uh, one of the factors that help manifest punk rock in general is this um, movement or um, subtle Marxist offshoot called Situationist International. And um, that basically seems to be like an effort to just annihilate beauty and art. And those are my words and opinions, but there's tons of material out there that I feel like can cite and change minds because they say it themselves. I use their words against them. But yeah, so I, that's, that's a huge piece of this puzzle we haven't even touched on. And I really can't touch on it because it, it would take hours. Literally, it's insane. But those guys are destroying art, you know, in a number of ways. And these guys uh, started by Guy Debord, and it was critiques on um, capitalism and the modern spectacle and how people are living. And in all honesty, um, people like John Adams don't disagree with Guy Debord on a lot of his statements. And after I looked into it and actually read the books I was talking shit about, I don't disagree with them either, but it's, again... It's, uh, it takes us down this like eventual revolution tunnel, which I think is part of my thesis too, is like the perpetual revolution on every front all the time and every social group, just different pages of a script describing the various forms of revolution. Even like good guys, like quote, good guys like Ron Paul had the Ron Paul uh, revolution. You know, everybody's, everything's a revolution. The Pepsi revolution, Pepsi generation, you know, whatever, you know, everything. So um, this this group um, has a lot to do with it because many punk bands outright say Situationist International is a um, influence, and you look at the influence of Situationist International is like um, the ideas of Dada and like surrealism, and then when you trace Dada back to the twenties and the cabaret movement, you trace it back to the Weimar culture uh, in Weimar, Germany, and then you, you look around Weimar, Germany at what was going on at that time, and the think tank, um, what's it called, Frankfurt School, <laughs> is pumping out, as Jan Urban says, spies in academic clothing, and, and so that's a huge piece of the puzzle there, because not only the, is there um, the Frankfurt School, but they actually set up in New York and the school was uh, known as the, um, I think it was known as the School in Exile, but it's actually New York, um, the New School for Social Research, I think is what it's called, but the New School, that's what it's called. And you can find punk shooting out of the New School, which is essentially the Frankfurt School, uh, basically a cultural think tank manifester everywhere. 
So that is a humongous piece of like when people debate me, that's like where I have to go for history and and stuff. The sad thing is people are like, oh, but Dada's a good thing and Myanmar was an excellent culture and they don't realize that it was social engineering bringing in all kinds of rapidly um, debasing ideas quickly in over decades only, not hundreds of years, just decades shooting this shit into our cultures through uh, a handful of generations instead of multi-generationally. Those think tank dudes were smart. They got it. We're doing it. So that's a massive piece of the puzzle. The situation is international, Dada, um, Weimar culture, uh, Frankfurt School, New School, and again, New School's in New York. So that stuff is critical when it comes to proving the case. Um, I can bring this shit up all day, but the punkers, I have bands out the yin-yang, and um, they're going to say, situation is international, situation is international. Um, You know, as a reference, we have punk um, uh, moguls, I guess, like Malcolm McLaren, uh, the Sex Pistols uh, creator. Um, He was a member of a uh, late 60s counterculture group, I think, called King Mob, and they were an offshoot of situation is international. Um, you know, so like to me, like I've I've consumed so much data, taken notes on so much data, and reread so much shit that to me, I think I see this puzzle. Like I'm like, holy shit, this is none of this is real. <laughs> this stuff was thought up a long time ago, you know. And 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 that's I feel like again, I got to reiterate. I think punk is the spearhead. That's the one that's gonna break the heart of the family. Um, of the family unit idea in America and and such. And again, I have I, I need to reiterate that I am not against gay people or anything like that. I state that it needs to be, you know, everybody has their their thing, but you know, uh, you have a right to privacy too. I have a right to privacy. Let's just keep our sex lives private. You know, if you want to act flamey, like go to the flamey bar. If he wants to act like a football fan, he can go to the football fan. Or if you guys want to sneak around and intermingle in each other's um, collective spaces, go to the sneak around bar. Like, get it off the fucking TV. Get it out of our children's heads. Get it out of schools right now. Kids don't need to be taught about sexuality, let alone homosexuality. They don't need to be showed taught taught a, taught a curriculum on masturbation. Uh, what if they teach them wrong? You know, how, what's right? How the fuck do you know? But again, we have um, Freud and... Kinsey and disgusting technocrats, Darwinian thought processors, um, shitting this out as science, and so it has to be real. Well, if you look at uh, you know Germany uh, during that uh, World War World War II period and the, the corrupting of the society, along, first you know there was the bankrupting of society, and also it was going along the same time the corrupting of society. So that, you know, by the time, it, you know, things were so expensive, you just to get a, 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 you know, a loaf of bread, that uh, the youth, women were more ripe, more willing to, more ripe, more, you know, willing to prostitute themselves. Than, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you see that they're doing it the same thing. They're prepping us just like they, they prepped the folks in uh, Germany for, you know, as part of the phase of this World War Two of the Nazification of of uh, um, America, and I mean, I mean, let's look at right now. Did you hear that the the, the 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 tennis tournament there, uh, where uh, the Germans outrage at the U.S. place uh, uh, 
Nazi version of the anthem. <laughs> and they had some guy singing, you know, a white guy with a shaved head singing the, the Germans' uh, old uh, Nazi anthem <laughs> in the beginning of ceremony. Clown. That's one huh? clown that's been put on the, uh, on, on the stage. I'm not saying he's an actor. I'm not saying anything. He might be. He could be just a dumbass. But he's put, like, you know about him. You yeah, know what it's, I'm it's, it's, it's deliberate. It's obviously deliberate. So then it's now it's a problem that this one guy did this. And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about that. Why is that out there? I don't give a fuck about that guy. Get I know, but it's, it's, it's just a meme, right? It's, 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 it's planting the seed, yeah. you know, because, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, as it's, things it's, get more and more worse, you know, there's going to be, you know, you got people out there, uh, you know, the blacks and the whites, you know, you know, you can see the Jesuits and you see the media, no. you know, fomenting things like, uh, uh, well, you know, whatever it may be, uh, all these different, uh, you know, Black's Life Matter and Ferguson, what happened to Ferguson. And it's well, just, it's, you know, you see what they're doing. They're agitating the populace. And, well, <laughs> it's a reboot, too. So when you were in the 80s, who were the punk songs against or the hardcore songs? Reagan. There's a huge linchpin of Reagan. I'm not saying he's a catalyst. I'm saying it's, it's an attack, an assault of the mind. So in that generation, Reagan was a linchpin. Tons of anti-Reagan stuff, rock against Reagan, you know, he's just, you know, Reagan youth, like whatever. So, but then there's a, a Democrat, a liberal, that didn't go on with Bill Clinton. No, none of that shit went on with Bill Clinton. None of it. Nothing. The punkers are just fucking expanding and in the 90s, that's when the riot girl movement's kicking off. They're capturing a bunch of mine. They're concentrating on business. Then we got Bush. And that's like kind of when I was into hardcore. And it's like, fuck Bush, you know. Let's make pictures of Bush snorting people like cocaine. You know, and then the punkers are all against Bush. Okay? Then we got Obama. They're done. They're done bitching. Let's, let's get as gay as hell. Like, we're going to, the social justice movement, you know, um, the riot girl movement's hyper-sexualizing, you know, <laughs> Their young audiences, you know, by telling them to be a slut and not, but don't get raped. Um, and, and that's with the liberal guy in there. But now we got Trump. So right now the drums are beating. We're going to have another revival of hardcore again. So I see an eight-year pattern plain as fucking day. Plain yeah, as day. Yeah. Plain as day. But then you got Trump now with his connections, his open connections of the the Jewish mafia and his you know of openly supporting you know Israel and all that kind of stuff so you can see that it's really going to be church fomenting the um, and agitating the populace yeah um, and and it's already going like Fat Mike and all those dudes are already off to the races it's the same. And even your generation, those dudes that are still like 50, and I'm not saying you're 50, but I'm saying those dudes that are like 50, they're like, yeah, let's revamp, man, people will pay us. You know, like they're striking up the drums and shit, like bad religion, no effects. All the guys that I, in my time frame, they're, they're already running, they're running full steam ahead. The day after punk rock, or the day of the inauguration, we had a punk show in Denver, um, and I didn't go, of course, because they sucked. But it was an anti-Trump <laughs> punk show. It was an anti-punk Trump show day one. So for me, this stuff is, I mean, you tell me when people were like, you know, maybe a handful of bands talk shit about Clinton. Maybe a handful. 
Um, and maybe mildly, you know, maybe, but nothing like what you experienced with the Reagan years, nothing like what you experienced and I experienced kind of overlapping with Bush, and definitely not what we're going to experience with Trump. Um, This this is going to be a crazy ride this this time around. But when the liberal guys in in the chair, it seems like they're off doing the the social adjusting, and then when the conservative guys in, they're using that social justice as the loudspeaker. So... You know, again, like, to me, it's plain as day, like, incrementally. And I hate to use the gay thing. Again, I don't want to sound like a homophobe. But that's what they're using. They're using that. They're using. So the definition of punk is, um, there's a few of them, but it's like something or someone worthless or unimportant, um, a young ruffian or hoodlum, an inexperienced youth, a young male partner of a homosexual. Um, You know, so... The, the, it's crept in, and now we have bands like Life of Agony, where, and I loved those guys. They were angry and depressed, and the guys had problems with heroin. Loved Life of Agony out of New York. The, the lead singer is now a girl. Um, he changed to a she, and he's out there acting like a woman, And but he's, he's singing the same old songs that I loved. And I'm like, well, he changed. Look, go get some new material. Like, I want to, like, just like lock this in a compartment and leave it there. I don't want to adjust it. But so now this super heavy, I mean, it was, I loved it, but it was super heavy uh, New York metal hardcore stuff with a deep voice singer too. The guy's voice is deep. That's why it's excellent. Super deep. Now he's a chick and now he's doing the same deep voice with the same song. So that stuff wasn't out before, but now there's a handful of bands where that's going on, Fat Mike, like a bunch of crossdressers back in the day, not a bunch, a handful, but they were um, very outspoken about it. You know, like uh, the guy from um, Dave Dichter from MDC is a crossdresser, you know, like a lot of them, you know, but and that's over the course of a few generations of punk. But now it's, um, they're full on, like, on, on, on the big screen as, you know, where they were, an excellent band underground. Now they're on the big stage with the same stupid. Well, they, I like the songs, but the same songs from the nineties, but now as a woman. And to me, I'm like, what the hell? And there's, you know, I, I know of three in my database and one of them was from a band I loved. <laughs> so part of the total onslaught too, is like a, you know, the, the quote that's battered around, some people say he said it, some people say he didn't. I bet none that he did. William Casey, CIA director, he said, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything in America, in everything the American public believes is false. And it seems to be that way. I'm mean, from my own research and my own life, and whether it's Scientology, whether it's the music scene, whether it's politics, whether it's the things that you know, <laughs> everything is based on a freaking lie. It's, it's absolutely necessary for an empire to lie to its people to begin with. That's the way it maintains its power. Let and me tell you a story. Go ahead. Let me tell you a story about William Casey real quick, because um. It overlaps my work, and it overlaps Dave McGowan's work in the book uh, Program to Kill. So William Casey pops up um, because I'm just going to get to the punchline, but William, after William Casey died, <clears throat> serial killer Joel Rifkin was his widow, Sophia Casey's landscaper. Of course. 
<laughs> okay. All right. So how this fits into punk rock is uh, one of Joel Rifkin's victims' name was Tiffany Bresciani, and she was uh, – I've read that they were engaged. I don't know how, how junkies get engaged, but she was at least with, romantically, the singer for a band I used to love called Reagan Youth. And his name was Dave Rubenstein. And um, if I remember right, because I'm going off memory here, um, if I remember right, Tiffany was his last victim, and he killed the singer of Dave Rubenstein's prostitute girlfriend, because Joel Rifkin allegedly picked up prostitutes. And But before that, he was the director of the CIA, William Casey's widow's um, landscaper, introduced by a guy named Owen Smith, I think, who's, uh, you know, looks like he came from a spook school as well, and he's a relative of the Casey's. And uh, Mr. Smith scooped up Joel Rifkin at a place called Planting Fields Foundation, if memory serves me right. So that's worth an investigation um that's this is still an open case but yeah so <laughs> what the hell is what are the odds of a serial killer working for the cia director's widow and then what are the odds that dave mcgowan writes a book about serial killers being completely dubious and wrapped up with shit like that like when i found that i was like here we go i'm not i'm not putting this research down for till it's done <laughs> Yeah, so we got a mo- a mo- multiple, you know, the Evergreen State College Ted Bundy connection. Debbie Harry claims that Ted Bundy picked her up and was trying to kidnap her, but she escaped. That's funny. Um, have you ever heard of Mari Terry and his book, The Ultimate Evil? No, no. Well, Dave McGowan references it um, pretty pretty extensively in um program to kill there's and i had no idea of it my one of my partner researchers brought this to my attention and i have the book and read it i just didn't remember it but robert maplethorpe um in this book they suggest robert maplethorpe um i don't want to mess this up but he was involved in a snuff flick um with uh the son of sam (laughs) So David Berkowitz, if you hear his modern confessions, he's like, yeah, I didn't kill all those people. Other people were killing them. Um, I think the links go to the process church. The book, The Ultimate Evil, is completely about this thesis and these ideas. And he uh, names people, and he said one of his killings, um, I don't even think he did it, um, again, because he said that he took the rap for multiple people killing, and I guess it's process church weirdos. But... Um, one of the killings that he knew of when he was a part of the church was a murder, and there was a van set up to film it, and allegedly Robert Maplethorpe had something to do with it. And Robert Maplethorpe lived with Patti Smith, and she's basically the queen of punk rock. So we have serial killer connections, too. And if we take Dave McGowan's work at heart and his thesis, like them being dubious as hell— we're overlapping dubiousness with dubiousness to validate each other's dubiousness. <laughs> so that's why it becomes a matrix. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the what was the name of the author? Uh, was it Hunter Thompson? Was he part of that crap too? 
Um, allegedly he filmed Netflix, I think. In your um, state, wasn't it? In your state? <laughs> um, I don't know if it was at Woody Creek, but I don't think it was actually. He might have though. I I don't know, but so he's allegedly connected through like the 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 Franklin cover up distantly and um yeah, I've I've heard that. I I can't remember. Oh, Rusty Rusty something talks about it. I can't Rusty. I can't remember his name, but yeah. There's a guy in jail named Rusty something that talks about all of the Hunter Thompson allegations. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a couple books I have that bring all that up. I don't, I don't, you know, I have no reason to disbelieve it. I have no reason to, to believe it yet because I haven't dug it out. And I, I feel like I'm trying to establish a new way to look at this shit. And it's by actually trying to disprove it, like take this idea and disprove it. And then you do that by gathering facts, data from obituaries, genealogies, uh, multiple accounts through multiple sources, and just kind of look at the pieces. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it, but I would not, you know, I would much rather give you like five or six dubious links to be like, I don't know, but here's what I do know. You know, <laughs> like, that's kind of where I go with my research is actual use their words against them and see what's laid out there as the history, you know what I'm saying? Right. Well, brother, I, it was a heck of a night, and I do appreciate you, you still joining me. You shared an awful lot. It's going close to three hours, man, so it's getting close to 12. And I, I'm beat, man. I just, <laughs> so, but anyways, uh, yeah, you could be with us. We'll try to do it Saturday again if you're game, and uh, uh, we'll decide where to go from there. Um there's a lot of lot of lot of directions to go with this, and uh, I, you know what I think we're going to have to do is um, let you share more of what you know, and um, and uh, let uh, uh, Sean share his experience in the punk scene and what it was like, because you know he was out there in, <clears throat> in that same region, you know, uh, really close to Lansing, and you got Grand Rapids, Michigan, and all that sort of kind of thing. So it's, I believe that's it, right? It's a Grand Rapids, Michigan, close to Lansing. I'm gonna look into that. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know, but Ann Arbor, the name Ann Arbor just comes up a ton. Yeah, well, Ann Arbor is just a mile up, the, an hour up the road from me, and I can't remember if Grand. I should know this. I've been there like a thousand times, but I just just to confirm my suspicions, Grand Mass, uh, Grand. What did I call it? Grand something? Rapid or no? What do we Grand say? Rapids. Grand Rapids, yes. Very tired. Uh, right, in just hold a second, let's see, because it's real close. In uh, I remember Michigan. And it's pretty, it's pretty close to uh, Lansing, I believe. Anyways, just down the road. So uh, yeah, so his, his connections and all this thing with his 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 insights to it all that'd be good and uh who knows maybe who knows maybe we'll end up deviating again if um if todd joins us next week i hope I, my words I, I just dissuade him i, I'm not I imagine that. after uh if he gets if he hears this with everything else he, he, well it depends on who he is i mean i told him i said in my show nothing sacred so 
<laughs> well, again, like one of the first questions I want to ask is if that White Panther logo is a White Panther logo. Uh, because, uh, like I said, that that shoots out some bands. You know? <laughs> White Panthers are definitely on my radar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, it's it's like, a, you know, I want to hear from them. I want to, you know, say a little bit about how the guy influenced so many of us and our, it, uh, but then you go from there, you know what I mean? So it's hopefully, yeah. after, after 30 years, hopefully we've all be mature enough to say, yeah, this is how that was, and this is how it really is, you know? <laughs> and, he's, he's, in, he's working in academia. It looks like he's at a very low-profile college as an athletic director, because i gotta, I got to do research on everybody. So he doesn't have the the hyper-exaggerated <laughs> successes that some of these idiots have. So there's an excellent chance this, this man's out to help humanity by, you know, educating kids. Um, I hope that's the case. You know, I, I'm not here to prove that or disprove that. I'm here to just share this crazy story that's um, that's just laying around. You just got to read and read and read and read and read, you know, and then it starts to, you know, and then compare it to other people's theses, and then you're like, holy shit, um, there's, there's something going on, you know, so... I, I, you know, I hope I don't dissuade him from coming on. I definitely don't have any plans to attack anybody. Uh, I guess I'm passionate, but I won't call him names or pick on anybody. Like I said, I, I look at him and I don't see um, the only red flag, I guess, would be, I guess, that's the White Panther logo. But again, that could come from a person that genuinely believes in the White Panther um, uh, ideas. And again, they had good ideas. But as far as my research is showing, it looks like they're just completely a controlled opposition uh, managed by the CIA. Like everything else. Like, like many, 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 many things. Yes. Except for... Definitely, definitely, definitely all revolution. Like, that is that is the game. They, they, they preach revolution in many forms to many different subgroups of people, and it keeps us in a state of revolution. And if you think of uh, Marxism, there's a term called praxis, and I've done some research and some philosophy, too, because before politics, people should talk about the philosophy and philosophers of the politics being preached. I think that's primary. We're lost in politics because that's the stupidest shit to get lost in. But you look at the philosophers, um, and you, you, it becomes kind of uh, kind of eye-opening. But uh, there's, a con- there's a concept called praxis, and the translation of praxis is the process. So, <laughs> coincidentally, the process. But, <laughs> but um, so to me, it doesn't mean like the eventual end is revolution. It means that the the end is uh, where we're locked in a perpetual state of mental revolution, where we're just stuck in the mindset of revolution, whether one happens or not. You're right. We're probably going to, there's eventually going to have to lead to war because that's what civilizations do. But um, either way, the ultimate goal of the Huxley-Darwin-Wedgwood uh, dynasty is to lock us in mental, mental uh, revolutions and uh, lock us in our minds through, um, you know, drugs and... Uh, like feudalist cultures and whatnot. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I I don't know. Um, really, it seems like you're, you're on the right track, bro. So <laughs> I appreciate it. So I do appreciate yeah. this this time. Um, once again, just mention the blog that you have, and then we'll end the recording part. The uh, the address is fourhorsesasses.blogspot.com. <laughs> And that's for the Four Horses Asses of the Apocalypse. And that's our very juvenile, offensive, ad hominem way of getting material out. And it, we, we might mature 
you know, to something more professional like our the the peers we um, we enjoy and I look up to. I can speak for myself, but at this point, like it's fun and it's punk rock, you know. So when they get their feelings hurt, you know, when when Henry Rollins gets his feelings hurt, when I point out that he's been uh, in the USO since 2003, right after the war in Iraq started, he was on the USO doing comedy for the soldiers. You know, that's that's a contradiction of what he's been preaching. You know, <laughs> and he still does work for the USO. Just to let you he, know, he always was a jerk and always falls fall of it. So, so that, um, hopefully people realize that. So, All anyways, right. and and as far as you know, yeah, the the, the guys that you're doing your blog talk with, that's. Uh, um, Hoaxbusters, and uh, Chris was the first guest on this new series of uh, old religion dystopia. And um, you know, it'd be kind of cool maybe to get John, John to join us too. John's way more articulate than myself. Like pretty much, hopefully we can work this out. But he's a busy man, and I'm a busy man. But he's a very busy man. He has a newborn, but um, John, John has a he's way more articulate and uh, well spoken than myself in explaining this. I'm kind of just the the digger, like the actuary guy and, you know, cramming shit. And, uh, you know, so in an ultimate world, if John had all of my data, this would be an amazing presentation. But for right now, he's stuck with me. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to have him. Good. You're too good. Oh, I appreciate that. But John's way more eloquent. He has a calming voice. He's very smart. He connects the dots. He has some real good profundity. And I'm, well, I'm maybe, very happy maybe. Maybe he'll come on as Alex Jones. <laughs> well, we work pretty decent together as a team, so hopefully we, you know, like I said, maybe some, um, you know, I think he's doing that call with us Saturday. I'm not positive, but, yeah, like him, you know, him talking about ideas and me getting my notes lined up for the data dump is how I think we op- optimal, you know, we work optimally, or me data dumping and then him offering his uh, better descriptive uh, observations yeah. to it. Are you doing two shows Saturday then? No, I I thought he was doing one with us. I thought he was doing the one with Sean Condon and me and you. John? Maybe I'm mistaken. He, I could be totally like, yeah, I need to start writing this stuff down, but I thought John was, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I, met, I sent a message to Chris uh, telling him about it, and... I man, I'd love to have John on. I first time. I, I mean, uh, if he can tolerate me and my mumbling, bumbling, heck, have, have him on, man. More the merrier, <laughs> more the merrier, man. This he's absolutely. been so. a good peer to me. I, I got to tell you, like I like to ask him questions because I I don't have any. I don't want to say I don't have any friends, but I don't really want any friends right now because um, they all suck. You know these different <laughs> these categories to choose from. Just it's not my style, especially since I'm like kind of doing my own personal like uh, quest, but he's been a, he's been a um, really nice to have in my life. You know, yeah, you know, I, I, in a couple of frantic states, I'd talk to him and he'd talk me down. He's like, I said, that's why, I'd, you know, I wish, I wish I could give him everything I had because this shit would blow up with his articulation and his, uh, his style and personality or whatnot. But either way, we're, we're doing it the hey, way we're doing it. John, if you, if you listen to this and you hear what a, my voice hear about this, please join us. And absolutely. I did. I did mention to it, and I think I mentioned to. Uh, well, I mentioned to Chris last night about this show tonight. So, and if John wanted to join in, but I think it probably everything turned out the way it it does and should. So, I think it was best that uh, Todd didn't uh, join us tonight. I think probably it was 
you know, being the first episode installment of this uh, series on American, the American punk scene. Yeah, he, he uh, might want to hear. Maybe, maybe it was best that you and I like broke broke the round together here first, so before we go any further. So, you know, I got a lot of stuff out that I needed to get out, and you needed to get out. So, you know, the next time, you know, you know, if we do have a guest, if you know Ty shows up, then or whenever we have a guest, they can. Uh, you know what I mean? I can maybe because we're 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 clearing some of the air now. What's coming from our from us? You get yeah. more time for them. You know what I mean? Just to hear them and and be more um, on our game as far as asking questions and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. all right, man. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. And uh, if everyone else listens to this or will, and uh, keep it going, man. <laughs> all right. All right, man. Thanks a lot. All right, man. We'll talk to you later. Let's go. Okay. All right. Have a good night. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.